Welcome to this episode of Lev Avot, Heart of the Fathers. Explore with me the hearts and minds of the children of Israel and how their experiences relate to Torah. Together we might find out what connects us and how to turn back to the heart of our fathers. My name is Yochanan. I am a Jewish artist living on the ancient hills of Israel. Find me on Facebook or support my work on Patreon, where I share my best content. The links are in the description. Today, I invite you to meet Yoel Lieb. Hi, welcome. Today, I'm talking to Yoel Lieb. He is a committee member of Shorashim, a coordinator at the Interfaith Encounters. Right, is that correct, Yoel? Interfaith Encounter Association. Association. Tell me, Yoel, tell me a little bit about Shorashim. Um, or oh wait, maybe before we get to that question, you, you just came now from Alfunduk, right? And you, yes. visited, you dropped something down at Alfunduk. So actually, the guy was, that I needed wasn't even there, so I stopped and ended up continuing, but yes. Ah, okay. But you regularly go into Palestinian villages and you have befriended many Palestinian people. Absolutely. And uh, this is something <clears> that you have become very comfortable with um, going into towns where it is actually prohibited by Jewish law, right? For Jewish law? I mean, mean by really? Israeli law. To some yes, some no. Okay. So tell me a little bit about Shoashim. What does Shoashim do and um, what is your position there? What do you... So I work, as, I, as you said, I work with a couple, with two different organizations. Shoashim is actually the younger of the two. It's not even 10 years old yet. It started more or less in 2014 with the late Rav, Nachman, Rav Menachem Fruman, who was the chief rabbi of Tekoa at the time. And they started having meetings between Palestinians, local Palestinians from surrounding villages and Israelis from many of the surrounding settlements. <clears throat> and that ultimately gave birth to what is called Roots Today. I think it officially in like in 2015 or so is when they actually chose the name kind of in the wake of his passing and things where stuff took off. So the model and the whole, everything is, that's done there is really in his, in his merit and memory. Okay. When he partnered with a Palestinian who kind of woke up when his brother was shot at point blank range mm-hmm. in a crazy story that he came home one night and there was some tension in the village between kids throwing rocks and soldiers and he got out of his car to stop the rocks, stop the kids from throwing rocks and whatnot. And through a number of different things and confusions and whatnot, he was shot and killed. Oh, no. And when his brother was seeking justice, he started to realize just how corrupt the whole system is. And as a result, this led to him getting involved and seeking, saying that, no, resistance is not the path that we want. We say resistance and that is what we're pushed to do and mm. what what our our neighbors and our culture is telling us we should be doing, but it's not the proper path. So they joined in with with some Israelis. He joined in originally with Rob Froman and then from there they joined in with some other individuals who kind of picked up the mantle and it's blossomed to be much bigger. Today they have really four chapters. You have the main one that's in Gush Etzion, where they actually have their own little place there. Okay. And anyone who's interested... That's can... like a place for people to meet up with for yeah. Palestinians, a safe place for Palestinians and for Jews yes. to come together. Yes, it's a safe place. It's 
Okay. If an area C, we can get into what all the different areas are and that designation a little bit. Okay. But it it's a safe place. They have many meetings a week. They're kind of their flagship event is what's called Cafe Judur. Judur is the Arabic word for roots, shoshim in Hebrew. Okay. And basically what it is, is it's a time where people can come together, have a drink of coffee or tea, some small cake cookie type thing. Okay. And oftentimes there's either some sort of a organized discussion after a bit of time of open and wandering or maybe a guest speaker. Yeah. Okay. So I forget his name right now. I actually was there one time for one of the one of the chief architects of the Oslo Accords. Oh, wow. And what was really interesting was to hear his take on how it really failed and whatnot. And even though he was a part of it, he it said that he 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 could see that it was going to fail from the start, but he was mm. still he was pushed into being there and having to deal with it. And yeah, because I think a lot of people don't really know or understand that the Oslo Accords have caused uh, a big kind of a, you know there might have been a rift between Arab and and and, and Israelis or Jew, Jewish people in the past, but when the Oslo Accord came about, it's really when there was the separation of this what you would call a, a process to establish a two-state, right? Where people yeah. were more separated. Before that, Jews were able to go into Arab villages and meet with people and talk to people and buy from people. And, and now it it up until the Second Intifada. Okay, well. It wasn't until the Second Intifada that Israeli law came in and said, in contradiction and contravention of international law and the Oslo Accords, Israeli law prohibits the the Israelis from going into Area A. Oh, well, okay, so... They, so it's not even... It's just... Yeah, and it, it causes causes a lot of frustration, um, I think more probably on the on the Arab side than on, on the Palestinian side than the Jewish side, but there is frustration also on the Jewish side. There's frustration on both sides, but it's a it's a very complicated situation because when the... State of Israel, the modern state of Israel, decided one, the the Six Day War in nineteen sixty seven. Rather than doing anything with the territories that they had acquired, they just left them. Mm. They basically they're doing administration over them. They didn't apply any kind of law other than military rule over the area. Okay, which to this day is still very much part and parcel of the situation. I mean, you have such a messed up thing here because you have in the territories, what we're going to call, which is why they have this whole organization that the civil, <clears throat> they call it COGAT, C-O-G-A-T for short. It's the, oh gosh, the civil, I forget exactly what it stands for in English, but it's the civil administration of the okay. territories, basically. And it's, you have a mixture of British law, uh, Ottoman law is still acting, British laws from the time of the Palestinian mandate, Jordanian laws from the time of the Jordanian occupation oh, of wow. those territories, and then a mixture of Israeli military law and Israeli actual civil law, which are not okay, the same. That's, yeah, that's very confusing. One of, the, one of the things, not to mention you still have international law kind of hanging over things that people... Say, oh, well, you're in contradiction of international law as well. And so it's like you, you put mm. that whole picture together and it's, it's a mess. It's a really big mess. 
and it's ripe for problems. Okay. And the thing is when, so when the state of Israel won that war, they chose to just let things be for a while. They didn't let, they didn't move and pop. Yeah. With the exception of some of the areas in Gush Etzion that had been populated prior to the war and the areas surrounding Jerusalem, most of the rest of the area was left unpopulated at the beginning. They didn't move yeah, in yeah. residents. They didn't let people move in there. And they even when people tried to do things, they would kind of kick them out. But it was not such a big, there wasn't yeah. such a big push at first. Okay. So I think. So over time, sorry. What I wanted to get to with the whole Oslo thing. So what it, what it got to over time is eventually they started moving people in as they depopulated military bases was the primary way of doing it. Okay. When they saw that there was, there was this real ideological movement, there were people that really wanted to move. And they slowly started moving people into different areas. And as they moved them in, things started getting really well. The 70s and the 80s, late 70s, 80s, became kind of like a golden era. Okay. In that there was... Freedom of movement for everyone. Everyone got along. Yeah, Palestinians people, used to be able to go all the way to Jaffa and to go to the beach, the yeah, Israeli beaches. They went all the way there. There was, mm. it was kind of you could look in a sense almost like living in the United States, where you have multiple states, and you had different license plates based on where you were located. Okay. Because they had, if you were an Israeli, you had a the Israeli license plate from north to south. Yeah. But if you were from one of the Palestinian territories, one of the acquisitions, they divided them up based on regions and they gave out to them different, <clears throat> they had markings on the plate so that they knew where each person was from. Okay. So yeah. that was the administration of that, but everyone went everywhere. Yeah. People yeah. sat together. I've heard stories from people from the early forming of the, of the different Yishuvim, the settlements, they would go... You talk to them, even Ariel, which is now a big city. Yeah. It started off as, as some of the founders, it was called Jebel Mawit, the Hill of Death, or Mountain of Death, and is how the residents of Salpit called it. Okay. Because they just, they had no luck in cultivating things on it. They had a hard time. And so they basically, it was just kind of this land that was left to the side. And oh, they okay. filled off to the... Because nothing was to grow there. Correct. They tried, and it was just far enough and just problematic enough, and in between village there and the nearest village that it basically they decided here we're going to sell it off and they sold it off to the original pioneers of Ariel okay who started it and look at what it's become today it's become a, a legitimate city mm. Mm. with a university with a unit with a with a with a high with a industrial with a, area very recognized university that does accept Palestinians mm. and was built at the edge of the city so that it would be easier for them to get in and get permission to do yeah. that. It's interesting. I go to uh, the dentist over there and uh, usually I have a Palestinian person, doctor, you know, doing the work in my, Correct. my, my mouth. <laughs> There's a lot of that. There's anyone who wants to say, leaving the politics aside, that we have separate, which it's much deeper. Anyone wants to say that the economies are not intertwined, that they're separate in the economy, it's not. Yeah. Even the fact, Forget the fact that we use the same currency. Mm. It's it's one economy that's very heavily intertwined. They rely on us for a lot. We rely upon them. Mm. I mean, you go into their stores in the villages and even like well behind the, the green line, well into like the areas that the Jews don't normally wander. Yeah. And you find Israeli products. In uh, Hebrew okay. even. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. if it's certain products they put out special Arabic only runs. Like mm -hmm. that they'll distribute also in the Israeli Arab villages. But 
it's not unusual to see Israeli products and Israeli produce. Mm. What you do see more often, though, is kind of hiding the other way, where on the Israeli side, they'll bring in the, the, <clears throat> the Palestinian produce, but they'll repackage it in a plant and they'll relabel it to try and disguise the fact that it's coming from there because there's a lot more resentment and mm. hesitation. There are people who don't want to use it. Yeah, yeah. But to say, if one wants to say, oh, I want to disconnect, I don't want to buy from Arabs, I don't want to have anything to do with them. If you're saying it in the sense, oh, I want to support my, my fellow Jewish brothers, okay, I, I hear your point. If it's not a thing from hatred, if it's coming from a, a thing of, oh, I want to support my brothers, yeah. fine. By all means, I'm not going to say, no, you absolutely have to support them. Mm. But just because that person bought from a Jew, you're buying from a Jew, the one you're buying from did not necessarily buy from a Jew. Yeah. And even if he didn't, usually one more, one more step away did. Yeah, yeah, because we're so close, you know, it's such a small country, Israel is small. The, these territories, the Palestinian territories is close to us, it's small, we're intertwined with them. Yeah. To put in the size so, of, like, yeah, like something egg, Americans eggs, for instance, the size of, of New Jersey, in New Jersey. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's, but even with that, the majority of it is populated in an area much smaller than that. Okay. So, so what do we? Anyway, so the golden era happened. So yeah. No, continue. That, that was the golden era, really. And I've had a number of people talk to me about how they mm -hmm. missed that era, being able to drive from top to back. I know one guy who <clears throat> has a an olive grove that abuts up next to where I live. Okay. Literally right by my house. I look at my back windows and I see his trees. Yeah. And I very, very affectionately refer to him as my neighbor. We're on excellent terms. Okay. During olive harvest, I'm out there with them, and he. So he, he tells me about how back in the olden days, what he would do, there was one time that he drove, I forget the exact order that he did it now, but he started his day at home. He lives in this area. Okay. He lives there. Dry, drove up to Haifa, Tel Aviv, all the way down to Gaza, something, and then back. Spent more than five hours in the car driving. Well, more than five. No, five hours, I think, it was just like the driving time. And then all okay. the time stopped. Wow. That was just... Yeah. But today you, you can't do that. Yeah, it's not possible. People who are married to, even Palestinians from the quote-unquote West Bank, the Judean Samaria territory that are married to Gazans, okay. have issues going back and forth. Okay. They have yeah, to basically yeah. choose a place and live there. Yeah. I see. Yeah, yeah. It's very it, disruptive. It's, it's, a, it's a mess. Yeah. So Oslo came along and they got this idea, oh, we're going to give them a state, we'll give a trial run, and we'll... Mm. Oslo, first off, one has to understand, Oslo was never meant to be a permanent solution, meant to be a trial run of handing over responsibilities to see, can the Palestinians self-govern themselves as a state? And then from there, as things move along, we'll give more and more, and within five, ten years, they're supposed to phase out and go to a full, either a, two, a full two-state solution, okay, or scrap it and do something else that it wasn't working. Yeah. But... People just kept hanging on to this idea for a long time. So that kind of became, that started the downfall. Yeah. Where people were still buying. People are still good. I know people that are of the younger, some of the younger generation, but still older in their, in their 30s, who do remember when people go into, into Nablus and into Ramallah for dentists and doctors and shopping. Yeah, yeah. And th these are oh. people who are still younger generation that, they were, they were teenagers at best. Mm. 
during this period. But with the outbreak of the Intifada, the second Intifada, that really is what killed everything because mm. they decided to resist and it just it escalated and escalated. And it was kind of, it hit this no turning back point and things continued so bad that they put up these barricades, they stopped allowing the Palestinians. Yeah, the wall and the fences. And then and eventually, and people were going around still. Security, yeah. And so then they started building these fe- the fences and wall and it's, well, that was the period of the suicide bombers and one could argue that, yeah, it was necessary at the time mm-hmm. and all these barricades. I think that they've outlived their purpose and I think that if anything, we should start trying to move back in the other direction, back into a uniting sense and opening mm-hmm. the walls or even if we're moving towards a two-state solution, yeah. at least open up the, the travel and see how things go. Give it a trial run. If it, start, yeah. if it sees that it's working out fine, great. If someone does something, they need to be punished significantly. Yeah. Not, I don't say slap on the wrist. I don't know if that's if it's that simple because you know we you know at the moment we're experiencing a lot of uh, a, a, you could say an uptick in in violence. Yeah. Like in this town of Huwara, just um, we've had two attacks in yeah. two weeks, shooting attacks, and the one the one attack two people died, two Israeli Jews died, and um, the other attack was this week. The the guy miraculously survived um, being shot, I think, four times, twice in the head and I think two, twice in the body, I'm not sure. There was at least But he one, shot back and he survived. One in the, at least one was in a hand, that I know. Oh, in the hand, okay. At least one was in a hand and I'm not sure if the bullet entered the head or grazed or shrapnel. Yeah, I think it hit. grazed his head, yeah. But, I mean, the guy was also military. We're not talking from like lightweight. Yeah, no, he, uh, was, he, he said, I read that he said he saw the guy walk um, in front of his car, he stopped for him to cross the road and he saw he's, uh, he's going for his gun. And at the same time, he went for his gun and they shoot, shot at each other at the, exactly the same time. Yeah. <laughs> and he hit him as well. And he, he also got hit. Yeah, they say that most of the bullet holes in the windshield is actually from his gun and not from... Yeah, yeah. He, saw, he said he shot 10 bullets. Not from the other one. Yeah. No, it's really... It's, he also it's ca- intense. He and it's... his wife down. He walked himself to the ambulance. It's quite impressive yeah and he put a tourniquet on and everything yeah it's very it's a video of him walking to the ambulance no i haven't seen that it's Uh funny because i saw the pictures and i was like that guy looks familiar i feel like i've seen him somewhere turns out it's the neighbor of someone that i actually know oh okay yeah he's from tamar yeah yeah so how do we deal with that like we we, you know we have this violence happening as well so there's a legitimate reason to have um i would say that people would have fear uh, or You know, because we are experiencing trauma and we're experiencing the, these attacks and uh, especially so, now going into Ramadan, which is, you know, usually considered to be a time of tension. Um, how do you how do you deal with fear? Because you go and you meet with Palestinian people on a regular basis. You go into drive through Palestinian towns and how do you deal with fear um, you know, doing those things in the moment. Are you able to to block the fear somehow? So it, it's a whole process. First off, I don't think that now's the right time to open up. Mm. You have to wait till things calm down a little bit, at least. I, I think we've had a few opportunities that it would have been good to do that, actually. Very good opportunities. But so as for me with dealing with the stuff and the fear, it's something as a religious man and someone who trusts in God, 
I won't say that it starts out easy, but it's something that as one works on their trust and belief in God, mm. things get easier and calmer. I mean, I'll tell how it really got started. The whole thing was I was in Neve Yaakov one time on a Friday morning visiting a friend and my kids were, <clears throat> at the time we had two kids. One was in in a, in a preschool, a nursery thing, and gone. And one was a baby. And I, I was debating, I was like, all right, fine, I'm starting to head home. And it was questionable whether I make it back in time to get my bigger kid from school or if my wife would have to go out with the baby. I was like, oh, I'm in the area. Oh, hey, dude, thanks for his Ramallah here. Obviously, I can't drive all the way there. And we were not living in a settlement at the time. But I looked at I was like, you know what? That's the direction of Kalandia checkpoint. I hear about it all the time. It'd be kind of interesting to see it. It's really close. So I start driving and driving, and I'm driving through the Aram neighborhood of Jerusalem, which is half of it's behind the wall, half of it's not. It's an interesting place. Okay. And, and like basically, you're trying to Vayako. And instantly everything turns all Arabic. It's very, it's very weird mm. because up until that point, everything is all Hebrew. Yeah. And literally is the dividing line. If you go straight into Beit Hanina, it's also kind of the same way, but you do have a lot of Hebrew in Beit Hanina. But if you turn right, very quickly it's all Arabic. Yeah. I've, tri- I've driven through there, yeah. And <laughs> so this is my first time really being exposed to it. At that point, I had, yeah, I'd been to to the Karnashimon region once for something, but that was on a bus and I was not in charge of my, of my own travels and whatnot. And even at that, the bus driver noting that I was still at that time, a new immigrant and didn't have the greatest Hebrew. He's like, make sure the person you're meeting is there. And if not, I don't want to let you off unless you know the person for sure. There. Oh, well. <laughs> so like it kind of built up the fear a little bit even too. Mm. And it was interesting because you, as you're driving along the road, you see little shacks on the side of the road and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's something different. You don't see that kind of stuff on the other side, on the 48th side so much. Yeah, yeah. So I so I turn right, and I'm driving, I'm driving, I'm driving. I get to a point, I'm like, you know what? I don't know how much further it is. I thought it was like right there. If I go back now, if I turn back right right now, I, can, I know I can still make it back to my son. Mm. I don't need to make my wife go up. I'm going to turn back. So I turn around at this little gas station right there and I drive back to get my son. Great. As I'm driving, I realize, you know what? I was not turning around only because I wanted to get my son. Yeah, I did want to help my wife. Yeah, I wanted to do that. But the ultimate deal breaker was the fear. Yeah. It would have actually been quicker for me to keep going. Okay. Significantly quicker. I didn't even realize until I got home and I looked at the map and it was about 15 seconds away. The gas station is the last thing. Yeah. And then... You go a little bit more and the road curves, but it curved just enough that I couldn't see that that, that it was right there. Okay. So you became aware of your fear as so became, after I, the fact. I became aware of my fear. I was like, wait, I'm supposed to be God-fearing. Mm. God is everywhere. And I'd already been saying things like, what should I be so scared? Things can happen. This was around the time of the whole knife intifada thing. Okay. And people were, there were all these stabbings. I was like, I was realizing, like, when my time has come, it comes. It's not up to me. Yeah. That's something that's outside my control. Yeah. Man can make effort, but if I'm a person who believes in God, then he can intervene in any one of ways 
stop it, be it through means of nature or miracle. Mm. So I need to work on myself. Yeah. And from that moment, I took upon myself to work on myself. And so I did. And that meant going around. And then eventually I started driving around exploring. I was like, you know what? No, I should explore these other places. I shouldn't be like one of these people because mm. we had someone who we trusted that was like, yeah, I'll tell you which places you can go, which you can't go. And what we realized after the fact is that anywhere over the green line is a bad road in his book. Yeah. There's like two roads that's like, yeah, you can go on those most of the time. Okay. But I was like, no, 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 don't go there. It's all dangerous. <laughs> so, and I realized that there's a lot of beautiful things that like, yeah. you really don't even realize how beautiful it is. Mm. I mean, yeah, the Golan and the Galil are nice. And for many people, that's what does it. For me, the, 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 the Samaria, the Samaran region is... Yeah, there's something special about the Shomoran. You know, it's, uh, it's really the heartland and, uh, of Israel because of the, most of the, of the Torah and the stories of our patriarchs takes place in, in these areas. And uh, yeah, and that makes it special and amazing. But this, just going back to fear, this basically, right, there's about two, or I, I define it, I don't know if I'm correct, but there's basically two kinds of fears. The one fear is where you are, there's nothing, nothing has happened, but you're projecting fear into your future. You're saying, oh, there's these dangers out there and they might happen to me and you kind of imagine them happening to you, right? That's that's a non-existing fear. You're, you're basically creating a vision of things that can go wrong with you. And then you have another fear that kind of arises out of the moment. Like imagine there's just a tiger jumping out of behind a tree and attacking you. Like that's instantaneous fear that's in the moment, right? So something that's not within your control, basically. But the fear of something in the future is something that we have a level of control over. We can become aware of it. Yes, I'm having this fear. Okay, do I want to indulge in that fear? No, you want to move away from it and think about something else. And I think, you know, that connects to me with this idea that we have to fear only God, right? That's the only mm. um, thing or person we should fear is the creator himself because he is the one that's really in control so of all situations. The... First off, I'm sorry if I get a um, long thing than just talk and talk. <laughs> no, that's fine. It can happen sometimes. I'm sorry if I'm interrupting you. No, no. There's... Bring you back to these kind of... Because I, I like to, to, to bring the conversation to religious, um, to religious concepts and to hold the back on, to the Torah. That's where we're about to go right now. Yeah. Part of it, at least. All right. But I was going to say, talking about these two types of fears, you can really relate it back to that one is an intellectual fear mm. and one of them is an emotional fear. Okay. And, oh wow, I'm having lots of interesting things. But, and those relate to the ideas of the mind and the heart and kind of the, the hallmark of the Chabad school of thought is the idea of mind over matter, mind over heart, that mm. you don't let your emotions run away that a person stays in control of their mind and uses that to rule over things, rule over indulges and whatnot. That, that, don't, don't think that means that one can't take pleasure in the world. Mm. No, absolutely. That's what this world is here for, is for us to indulge in God's pleasures. But at the end of the day, we're here because Hashem is in control. Hashem is in charge. He wants us to be here. Yeah. But at the same time, he gives, for whatever reason, he put us here. We don't know that. Mm. But... 
he gives us the ability to interact with and manipulate the world. Yeah. So how does that play into here? The emotional fear is that fight or flight type thing. Yeah. You have something happen to you and your adrenaline kicks in. Mm. That is, that is the start of, <clears throat> that, that's the emotional fear. Doesn't mean you can't overcome it, but that's the emotional fear. Mm. Intellectual fear is when you start thinking about something and you start becoming afraid because of what you're thinking the, the about projection, as you're saying, mm. which the intellectual can cause an emotional fear. Yeah. And tension and uh, anxiety. I think it creates anxiety. The emotional fear is not necessarily likely to cause, in general, will not cause a intellectual fear, but if someone goes through certain events or endure repetition events, it can cause them to have an intellectual fear of something, mm. kind of a cause and effect sense. Yeah. That being said, even if one chooses that they don't want to be fearing and accepts that as part of their thing, you're still going to have this adrenaline rush. Yeah. The question is, how do you cater to it? How do you react to it? Mm. Do you give into the fear or do you not? Yeah. And I'll admit, as it's something that I have been working on for a number of years now, it's not necessarily always a it's simple not, it's matter. Not easy, it's not easy, yeah. not easy, no. <laughs> they do not give in to fear, yeah. There, there are times where I'll get that little kind of rush of the fear. It's like, and yeah, I'll, there are times where I'm like, okay, I just have to go through and I have to do this. Don't mm. be afraid. And there are other times where it's like things that were once a fear, as you do it multiple times, that's where you have that kind of the interaction between the two, as I said before, where you can cause a fear by going through things. Yeah. This is, and, and this is the crux of what we need to be doing towards solution piece, if you ask me, is we have, most of us have this intellectual fear that's placed upon us from outside sources, this and that. Mm. How many people can actually say that they've been witness to a terror attack, have yeah. been, been a victim themselves on some level, been in a rock throwing mm. where they've had rocks thrown at their cars and done stuff? I can tell you that a number of us that are involved in the peace activism world have actually been yeah. at one point yeah. or another. But it doesn't make us stop because we realize, okay, this is the exception. This is not the rule. Yeah. Well, oh. if we if we include stuff like rockets being shot from Gaza and so on, then of of course those things. But how many people have actually small. been close? How many people have actually seen the rockets mm. and seen them up close? I mean. Yeah. No, I, I have no idea. No offense. Me, me personally, I've experienced seeing, seeing uh, fire flight over the skies, seeing the things fall. I. I from a distance, unless you've seen one actually up close or had it hit something, mm. I, it's still, you're taking someone else's word that that's exactly what's happening. You didn't experience it. Yeah. You, you witness something and you're taking someone else's explanation for what it is. Yeah. It's not like when the time that we were on a highway and we heard one and they fell in the area and we saw the rocket sitting in the middle of the highway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that I know happened. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't need someone to tell me. I'm not taking someone else's pictures. I actually experienced it. Okay. And that gets back to a topic of the difference between faith and knowledge, but we'll go there in a little bit. But so the thing is that you, you get to a point of having to overrule it, and one can teach themselves how to not be afraid. Yeah. And that's what we need right now. We need to start yeah. overcoming because... Yeah, because if, if you have trust in God, you know that whatever is going to happen, right, 
whether or not there's something bad that's going to happen to you or not, it all comes from God. Correct. And you, we have to, we have to accept. We can only accept that. Well, the thing is, nothing bad is happening. It's all a matter of how you perceive it. I mean, there's this whole idea that's in the Gemara that everything is in the hands of heaven, but except for the fear of heaven. Mm. And when we take that into account, it's we choose how to react to a situation. Yeah. I'm not saying that things are outside our control. Yeah, there are certain things that are outside our control, but our mind is not one of them. Mm. That is the one area that we have complete control is our mind. Yeah. The thoughts that enter into it, that is not necessarily our control. Yeah. Things enter in. But what we do but we got thoughts, the, we've got the choice to do we want to engage in those thoughts or do we want to entertain correct. them or follow them and correct. And it's the same goes for sinning. Like if you wanna people you know, we're all basically sin in, in all different kinds of ways. But when you have a, a let's say an evil thought or a bad thought that arises in your mind and you choose to engage in that thought and to follow it and to eventually if you do that every day, because these things become kind of um, repetitive. We have repetitive thoughts of the same bad thing or that you're choosing to engage with and then sooner or later it exits your mouth or you talk about it or you act on it. And that's how people commit commit crimes and or steal something or yeah. well, do other People also bad have things. certain predispositions that Hashem gave them into which things they're gravitating towards. And the person... Those are the challenges for that person. Whether they choose to act on them or not is that their choice. Yeah, that's that's the, basically the the knowledge of good and evil, and Correct. to choose to make the choices. The choice actually happens in when when we choose to go along with those thoughts. Correct. Or not. It's funny that you should say good and evil. It's not good and bad. It's good and evil. Yeah, it's good, good and evil. But even at that, the things that we experience, it's that come from God, everything is for the good. Mm. And the thing is, even if something has this appearance of bad, it's not that it's necessarily bad, it's, it's something, I mean, the Baal Shem Tov teaches mm. that everything a person experiences is for them personally to help them in their service yeah. of the Holy One. Because evil is a perspective, right? It's like somebody mm. comes and they do something to me, then in my perspective, that's that's, e that's you evil. Could, you could say it like that. There's certain things that are set up to be that way. It's a, To say that there's no actual evil, is it's a very complicated thing. Mm. But the way that things play out, because that's... Now that we're here, that is our basic job. We don't know how to accomplish it, but the whole idea is that, all right, you had this... When God made the world, he put in Adam, he gave him this partner, mm. and she ate from the tree. And as a result of that, she from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. And people always call it the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. It's, no, it's the tree of life, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. And so what that did is it unlocked this whole new level. It's kind of like as if you're playing a video game and you have choices of what to do. And they had one path that they're going down. It's like, okay, here's how you get from start to beating the game, so to speak. Yeah, okay. Right. So it's kind of like a simulation theory Correct. going into. Very much so. I'm not cutting God out of the picture. Game theory, yeah. I mean, but that type of approach actually is kind of funny. I saw a meme the other day, some put up about how simulation theory, it's like, oh, basically it's scientists have decided that they've come to the realization of what the Torah is and what the world is, what we've been stating for years, but they just want to cut God out of the picture. 
<laughs> but a simulation type theory of how the world operates is very much a one of the valid ways of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. And so basically they came up and she ate from this tree and all of a sudden, okay, you've now shifted courses. It's kind of like almost as if it was like you had two doors in front of you. One was open and one was closed. Yeah. And the one door was the shorter path to the end of the game. You close that door. You cannot get through it. Yeah. You opened up this other path now and you have to go through that door. <laughs> and that's a much more long and complicated world they have to navigate to get to the end of the game. Yeah. And that's basically what it is. And our goal now is now that we have this good and evil, we have to rectify this and separate back out because part was that mm. the good got mixed in with the evil. Okay. And that that is the... It's like people being confused of what is good and evil, right? Correct. And that is the role of mankind in the world is separating out this good and evil, separating out the evil from the good Yeah. to get to a stage where the good and the evil will all be very clear, clear of the day. Yeah. And then that is... And it's both necessary because if we don't have evil, we don't have a concept of good. Correct. And to understand good and aim ourselves towards good, we have to understand that there's evil and bad or night and, and day, you know, the all these dualistic, um, the dualistic nature of the world that we live in. It's a very, right. it's a very dualistic. There's this, this idea of dualism and juxtaposition and whatnot, it's, it's part and parcel of our world. It's, mm. I hate to knock on the woke crowds and they're non-binaries, but this binary aspect is something that's hardwired into mm. the way that the world exists. Yeah. It, it, it just what Once, it is. Ones and zeros. <laughs> but on so many levels that are interacting. So once yeah. you start having the overlap, all of a sudden, yes, now your world is no longer binary, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of, these kind of dual pairings of opposites mm. that drive the world. Yeah. And, that, and that's the whole idea behind a computer in a sense and why it works so well. If it didn't, I mean, if you didn't have this on and off, then you wouldn't have a computer. Yeah, that's the way of how um, information is stored as well. But so the the son of the, the Balatanya, the first Rebbe of Chabad, so his son, who's called the Mitzler Rebbe, he actually deals with this topic a lot, this idea of separating out the good and evil and mm. how it's kind of the necessary step. And Yeah, and that's what the Torah defines for us, right? It's, yeah. It says, this is the, the covenant that um, Israel made with the creators, or that he made with us, rather, is that we have to choose life or, or right. death. You know, it's the difference between life and death. And the one is the curse and the one is the blessing. Correct. And, and that's... And that's how the, these laws like Shemitah and, um, you know, the seventh year of release and keeping the Shabbat and all these things have, well, you know, most of these Torah laws, probably all of them, somehow connects back to the, the, um, the attributes of God, you yeah. know, like mercy and grace and loving kindness and patience and, and justice and righteousness and truth. And that's the whole thing with being the, the chosen nation, the sons of Israel, not to be confused with the modern day Israeli, yeah. which is a big mistake. Is that the idea of being chosen being that is we have these extra rules that restrict our life more, that the rest of the nation of the world, wow, what a mm. blessing it is to be that way. You get to live, God gave a couple rules basically to Noah when he did the restart, the great... The Great Reset. Yeah, yeah. He, he did the Great Reset with the flood. 
Okay. <laughs> he gave Noah a couple rules. According to the... The Noahide laws, the, the, yeah. According to the Jewish tradition, it's the Noahide laws. You could derive down whatever you want from it. Those apply to everybody because according to yeah. most religious opinions, at least everyone comes from there. Okay, but I don't, I don't know if... I want to disagree about this. Hold on. on what? Okay. what do you want to disagree on? And that it's a blessing for the, for the world. What is? To only have those laws. No, it, from one perspective, it's a blessing. I'm not saying that the blessing. Okay. I'm saying, wow, they should only be so grateful. It's like, look, you have, according to this opinion, it's seven laws. According to, if you just take a simple reading of the Torah, it's even less than that. Yeah. But, okay. Wow. Go, go live your life. Stop worrying about things. Yeah, it's a big so quickly, responsibility. Let, it's a should big we should we lo have a look at those laws quickly? Like that's a Noah, right? So they're not even written there. That's the best part. No, the Noahide laws are not written there. But let's see what it's what is written in Noah. Yeah. Right? So the while you're bring, while you're bringing that up, the shot there. While you're bringing that up, it's just the role of the of the sons of Israel is we were given a certain a certain responsibility and accountability and a mantle to carry as all right, you're now living in this world. I'm going to give you some extra guidelines that the other people don't have to help you navigate it so that you should be a light unto the nations. What does that mean? So that we should help guide them and that, that many of them should want to follow these things. Yeah. They're not required to. Yeah. By being someone who's not from the sons of Israel, they're not required. And I've been toying around with this. I'm still looking at the sources, so my views are not necessarily settled on this yet. But what does it mean to be a ger toshav versus a ger tzedek, a stranger that resides amongst you versus a righteous dweller? Yeah. Is the difference between, I mean, we use that concept to say a convert, someone who becomes a Jew today, which I think is both kind of right and wrong. So back in the days, everyone had their kind of tribal allotments. And that was yeah. the way the world was set up was on these tribal things. And here are these people that God said, all right, I'm going to put you there because they're people that are just doing complete evil in that area. So I'm going to put you there. I'm going to give you a blessing because you're the one, you're the ones who of your own accord came to recognize that there's one God, one man running the show. Mm. Not man, sorry, not man. One individual, one, one force, one entity is kind of behind everything. Okay. And science kind of recognizes that, but doesn't want to. I mean, that's mm. the whole idea of unified, unified field theory. Yeah, yeah. Theories. We want one unified force. It's like, God, people, wake up. Yeah. <laughs> What's really interesting with those theories as well, the deeper they go and the, the, the smaller they, or the, I don't know if you say the smaller they look, but the, the closer they look, uh, the deeper they look into matter or what, uh, the fabric of reality, they talk about something that's called the amplitohedron or something like that, which is funny enough, uh, very similar to two um, inter intertwining triangular okay. pyramids but they're uh, they force four-sided okay pyramids so if you look at them from the side they look like a mug and david interesting <laughs> yeah it's very interesting and the interesting thing about that is if you looked at it from another angle it would look like what's called the magen avraham the eight-sided okay eight-pointed star that one specifically i don't think so right Hold on, wait. Let me think about wait. No, because it's a tetrahedron. You said the the three sided pyramid, four sided pyramid. So it's one, two, three, four. Yeah, because the triangle on all faces. So no, never yeah, mind. Yeah, no, it's a square bottom pyramid. Yeah, but so yeah, no, that would. But so I'll share with you something that 
so I've been sharing with people. Be, before we continue with this, I just yeah. want to mention that I'll I'll just put up the text on um, wherever I'm posting this on Patreon, where people can see the what it says in Noah about the what Noah what God tells Noah is the the things that the humans should do after the flood. You know what they're allowed yeah. to do or not do. But it's basically not killing humans, not eating blood, and uh, I think there's a specific animals that's also mentioned. Um, so, yeah, it's to so that they can eat meat. Yeah, but back to this. Um, or first, you can go ahead with. It. Oh, where are they going with that? Uh oh, <laughs> <laughs> did I did I mess it up? Yes, give me a second. So the. Uh, you know, when when I think about these commandments, you know, that we say that I'm Israel, we've got all these commandments and the nations, you know, good for them. They don't have those commandments to do. They can do whatever they want to, basically. And, uh, you know, to me, the blessing, because that's where the blessing comes in, you know, the yeah. blessing and the curse. So if we do these commandments, we'll be blessed. And if you think, if you really think about those commandments, you know, they're higher, they're higher ah. um, values or attributes. Yeah. Are the attributes of God, you know, it's, it's having mercy, having a law that's merciful, having a law that's just, having a law that's true. Well, that's the whole idea behind that's, the book, The Palm Tree of Devorah, is that so, we're supposed to emulate the ways of God to, yeah. to connect with Him. And and when we do that, and as a nation, not just as individuals, because people all over the world, there are people that, I think there are people in every country that do that. They do strive to emulate God's attributes. And, and so, successfully, but that, as a nation, that's that's the why we are the chosen people because we will come together as a nation and do these things, and the world will see it and say, "What a just right. law!" And so I think that, in a sense, that's what it's the, the whole meaning. Going back to, like I said, I want to present the idea of the get toshav and the get tzedek, the righteous convert and the the dweller that lives amongst you, the get toshav, and the righteous convert is the righteous dweller is the get. I hope people can just bear with me. I'd rather use the, the Hebrew terms than trying the English ones, which are much more clunky here. Okay, that's fine. But in, I, I tried to keep my conversation strictly English okay. when possible, I hope. So I apologize to the listeners. But the so when the nation was living in one spot in the head of the Torah, you had people that could, you're living in your own land now. Okay, so you can have people that come and live amongst you. Those are the Garei Toshav, the, the Ger Toshav people. Yeah. Right? So they can come and they can live. And the obligations they have are only the obligations like we're about to discuss in a second, the Noah law, Noahide laws. Yeah. But that's incumbent upon everyone, whether they live or not. The only real extra thing for someone who lives amongst us is that there are few rules that are in the Torah in different places of Okay, this is what the ger needs to do, and sometimes they'll say specifically just they'll say just ger. Sometimes specifically ger toshav. Okay. And so part of it is recognizing the Torah's authority and the the, the rulership of their lands. That these are their lands, this and that. Okay. What's a ger tzedek? That's what we more or less call a convert today. But at the end of the day, they're not. It's, it's a very complicated thing because I don't think that that's what the Torah intended. People will say, oh, the Torah doesn't have a rule for how to convert and this and that. Mm. So because of all the mingling and losses over the years, 
many times I think the people who become converts, so to speak, and do this whole, what I'm going to say is the Gerasetic method, are people who actually came from. Nowadays, because we don't know, many people are people that were lost. They were originally from the yeah, people, lost you can't tribes. Become, yeah. you, can't, you can't become one of the tribes. Yeah. It doesn't happen. It doesn't exist. And even the example that we have in the Torah of somebody who has a non-Israelite father, but an Israelite mother, does not end well. Mm. It does not end well. No. But you can choose to live amongst, and one can choose to marry in. Certain nations are prohibited from marrying in and marrying their daughters, and that we have rules written about that. Yeah. But a lot of these, what we practice today, we're so far removed from it that to go back and go back to some of these earlier laws, it's hard to because it undoes yeah. hundreds, if not thousand years, a thousand or so, maybe close to 2,000 years of following certain traditions that were yeah. established during the times just after the, uh, the destruction of the Second Temple during the times of the Gemara and all these things in the exile. So there were many changes that were made that to undo it becomes problematic because all of a sudden you now become this whole standout. Yeah. But so that all aside, what is the Getzedic? The Getzedic is a person who comes in and chooses, you know what? I see the truth in this. I see that. Yeah. I want to take on a lifestyle of Torah. Yeah. You're not a son of Israel. So there are certain parts of Torah that will never apply to you. And I think in a sense, when we say that a convert today, it's like, oh, they, that before a person's a convert, that they can't do laws and stuff, maybe it's somehow connected to that, that they should break the Torah somehow. Well, mm. a convert, there is no such thing as a convert in that sense. You either are a son of Israel or you're not. Yeah, because when you convert, that. you become a, a part of the people. You become a, a son of Israel. That, that's how we view it today, but yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily the right way of looking at it. Mm. I think a better way, I mean, nowadays that's kind of the standard view and we have to respect that. Yeah. And it's because nobody knows for sure. Okay. There are very few people that can say, oh, I can trace my lineage back to somebody that's mentioned in the Torah and do it. Yeah. There have been individuals who say, yes, I can trace myself back to David Melech, mm. King David. But even the people that are of the priestly tribe today, very few of them can actually say, oh, we have a unbroken chain. We can say, oh, we come back to our own. Yeah. Yeah. The Kohanim, yeah. There's some that can go back to the times of the temples and then, of course, back to that. But very few. Most of them, it's like, yeah, father, son, but they don't it's know. It's still amazing that those people can trace it back. The interesting thing, far, yeah? and this is something I was had a discussion with my Samaritan friend, is the Samaritan tribes, they do claim that. So either they somewhere along the way, they adopted this thing uh, and they can trace it back and they altered history. Yeah. Or they legitimately are sons of Israel. Mm. I know this is uh, an idea that they were from the Assyrians. Correct. Uh, during the exile of the northern tribe of Israel, that they were came in from Assyria to displace the population. And that's the way they did. Correct. That's, that is the view. It's exiles, yeah. But once again, we're so far removed in history from that, that we can't yeah, prove yeah. one way or the other. Yeah. Okay. Save for having a time machine where we can go back and see it. They, they've, yeah. There's no concrete way of proving it that I can think of because even written documents could be forged. Mm. Okay. Saying like at the time, I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they had reason to say, oh, we want to be part of it. But they at least have, for them, they have a tradition and written down mm. for, the, for the priestly families. 
how they go all the way back. They know how many generations they are. I forget the current high priest is, oh gosh, was it 200 some odd generations? Oh, wow. They know the exact number and they know how, which the range of generations that people are alive today. Yeah. They're a small population, right? How many Sumerians? They're a small population. Do you, do you know what the population is? It's around 800, 8,900. Wow. Yeah, it's divided up between two communities. How do they prevent? The irony of that is why the two communities they basically were extincted. There could be some that are hidden around the world that don't realize that they're, I mean, there are for sure people that descend from them that are around the world that don't know. Okay. Uh, and there may be some of these like tribal people that have no access to, to normal, to modern society that could be of Samaritan descent and even practicing that we don't know of. Okay. But the current situation is that these two communities, there's one in Hagarizim, Mount Grizim, and one in the Israeli coastal city of Hulon. And how did they get there? Fear. <laughs> <laughs> Back wow. during the time of the first Intifada and everything, where it became problematic for them in the Nablus, mm-hmm. they moved out and the Israeli government helped them set up shop on top of the mountain. Okay. But many did not really want that. And so the community basically divided in half and half of group lives on Mount Grizim, mm-hmm. which we could totally go into depth onto it or not. I don't know how much we want to get into it. The biggest difference, biggest differences in the Torah between the Masoretic Torah, whatever you want to call it, the Jewish Torah, mm. and the Samaritan Torah is, for them, everything focuses around Grizim. Yeah, that's their... their and they claim that the... Their holy mountain or their holy place where the, they say the temple is supposed to stand, right? And they claim that the Jewish tradition was the one that changed things. Mm. Once again, how do we know who's right? Because the, the one thing that, if could be verified, would debunk it and put them as right and us as wrong is they have a scroll that is supposedly written by the grandson of Aram. Okay. If that is true, then either both are truth and there's supposed to be a group that worships there. And yeah, but wait a second. Even, even if something is written by the, the grandson of Moshe or Aaron, it can also be an, ad- an addition to the okay. Torah. It can be a... No, I'm saying they have the Torah. Okay. Torah scroll written. Oh, Torah scroll. Not, not a separate scroll. I'm saying the Torah scroll. No, but they have changes in the Torah scroll now. There's something, there's mean, something's different there. That's what I'm saying is, so either he made the changes uh, or somebody changed it after the fact somewhere along the way. Mm, I see what you're saying. But okay. if we could prove that that was written and that was written from him with the approval of... The, the, the people then, the Jewish approach would be wrong. Unless so you're saying right. they have a scroll that they claim has been written by the grandson of? Yes. The, the yeah. Handwritten by the grandson that's still in that's existence today. That's the claim. That would make it the oldest surviving yeah. copy of, of a Torah or version of a Torah. There, there's a lot of debate on this Torah because some say that, well, they've replaced peace, as pieces wore out over the years when they didn't have as many scrolls. There are pages that were replaced, and eventually all the pages were replaced. There's a lot of debate, like I said. Okay. If you could prove it, then... Because just for reference, like the, the, the oldest versions of Torah that we have is, the, is what's called the Aleppo Codex and the Leningrad Codex. Yeah. And I think I'm not... I, Those I, are both older than the Dead Sea Scrolls? No, they, they were not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. No, they're no, no. Actually, I said they're, they're older than the Dead Sea Scrolls? No, they're not. They're from, I think, they're, from they're, 300... They're newer. The new area, the new area. 
That's what I thought. So the oldest biblical text that we have in existence is the priestly blessing that's written on a silver scroll. Okay. Yeah. Because the the Dead Sea amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls they have Torahs. But the interesting but there's thing not is, comp- there's only sections. There's only pieces. Yeah. They don't have a complete one, if I remember right. But the interesting thing is they have sections both from the Samaritan views one mm. version, and also from the Masoretic. Yeah. But then also from other versions as well. I mean, they found tefillin there. Okay. Multiple sets of tefillin and ones which had different scrolls in the heads altogether. Oh wow. And and in the end, they different different parts different okay. verses written. So it's like you start to realize that. In the earlier generations, there was a lot more flexibility in what a Torah lifestyle was. Mm-hmm. Which brings us back to this whole idea of, so what's the Gertzedek? The Gertzedek is one who comes and lives there and says, you know, I, I see the truth in this. I want to have these, ex- these restrictions, rules placed on my life. I'm going to live like this. Yeah. And now everything, he basically decided what makes him a Gertzedek versus a Gertzedek is that he's chosen to live his life according to Torah. Could a Ger Toshav take on some of the things of Torah? Absolutely. Mm. But he isn't completely righteous. He's somewhere yeah. in between as he's taking on more things, where the Ger Tzedek says, this is my life. Yeah. Now, obviously the things that don't apply to him don't apply to him, just as someone who is a not of the priestly caste, the rules of how to deal with the priestly yeah, like the the Kohanim has got rules for them, that's a, that they have, to do, they have to do, the Levites have rules that, is relevant to them. Even People that, that that are in a situation correct. of war or going to the army, they have rules that is correct. That if you're, if you're a woman, if you're a man, there's different rules. Um, I would say I would say just so you know at be, like at best like today, circumcision. At worst case scenario today, everyone one could say that at worst case scenario today, everyone who's following a Torah lifestyle is a gerutzedek. At worst case scenario, okay. At best case scenario, everyone. No, it's not necessarily even a best case scenario because the Torah wants people to live their life that way. They want the Gerrit Zedek. Yeah. But I don't think it's necessarily a a down thing necessarily if one is son of Israel or not. Yeah. Okay. It, it's a matter you of You mean if you somebody do. is doing the Torah but they're not but they're part not of the Jewish correct. people. Yeah. They might, the be, they might be living somewhere else in the world and they're still doing correct. Torah and living. being a righteous person. and Correct. Yeah, Although I think with a person living abroad necessarily. I think if it comes if to a the person living abroad and doing Torah, yeah, would that count as a getzedek necessarily? Because yeah, it's you're not, not the living, land. you're not a dweller. You're not. I must land. say that the, the Torah is specific, there's a lot of laws in the Torah specific to living in the land. Obviously, correct. You know how to how to um, you know the land being divided up and you know. The, the, temple set up and the sacrificial, sacrificial system and all those kind of things. But when it comes to um, converts, I would say that the circumcision obviously plays a big role in that because, you know, it says also that in the Torah that, you know, if a person wants to participate in the Pesach offering, he has, you know, to, be like of Pesach, he has to be circumcised. Correct. So it makes sense to me that people who lived here with you know, let's say they're living here for a year and they're seeing how, you know, the law of the of the people, this righteous, just law. And, and they choose to, to go with that. And they want to, they have a desire to participate in the Pesach. On the Pesach, I don't remember all the laws there. There are laws as to which things apply to the Ger, which don't apply during the month of okay this month, this springly month. But it says if they, I think if they're circumcised, they, were... they become part of the nation. It's the same the same law for the... Correct. The same law. 
Yeah. But doesn't mean that they're part of the nation. It doesn't mean that they're part of the sultans. It doesn't mean they're part of the tribes. I think they're they became the, included in the tribes. They're part of the larger nation. But they don't they don't have a tribal They don't have land. They don't so have they're not part of the tribe. They're part of the people. Mm. They're part of the group. But they're not they're not part of the original there, patriarchal family. There are interesting um It'd be like it'd be like here to put it in a modern perspective. It's like we're seeing it less and less, but the villages here, mm. people don't up and choose to move to an Arab village. Yeah. In the Arabs, I'm saying. Okay. People don't up and choose to move to a village. A city, yes, different story. But a village, no, a village has yeah. several families and you're part of one of those families. And the reasons why someone who's not part of one of those families would necessarily move there is because they married into a family. Mm. But beyond that, a random person just doesn't move there. It's yeah, very yeah. tribal. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. I, I'm sure there are exceptions where someone does move. But, but in general, and this is a concept because we, and it, it, this is part of also the things and problems with the modern state of Israel, but also with the religious aspects, is that who, and this goes back to even some of the same things that we saw with the, the calling of the shots and the Gemara, which I was mentioning and hinting at, is we, we see the same principle of the whole, the, the victors write the history books. Mm. The stronger hand is that. And so you had those, when we went to exile, you had those that ended up in the European countries and those that ended up in the Arab countries. Yeah. And those that end up in the Arab countries, for the most part, had it pretty well. Mm. Until the foundation of the modern state of Israel, and when they started meddling with things, and that, that's, we're going to leave the depth of that topic for another time. Yeah, <laughs> it, it yeah I think... It's a thing that people that, will call that, conspiracy theory, but whatever. That's something they live that a fairly I, nice lifestyle. Hold on. Yeah, okay. The European communities, where they're amongst the Christians, oi, oi, oi. Even the foundation of what Christianity is, is the question, because there's an opinion that Christianity came from put, trying to make... A Torah, make it so different from Torah, it was Jews who took it and made it so different than Torah that the followers of that, that, that belief system would no longer be, appear Jewish. Yeah, to make so a separation between the Christianity and Judaism. Correct. It, it comes from Judaism. That's mm. very clear. Yeah. But the fact that there are several people that self-sacrifice, that sacrifice themselves to become part of the community and corrupt the community so much so... Mm is one of the opinions of how it really got to be there yeah. from being a Jewish thing to start with. Okay. Probably not much different than, say, a Hasidic movement. Mm. That also aside, the Christians were very anti-Jewish, and so they put them under a lot of pain, a lot of stress. Mm. And you see kind of an interesting, this going back to like this duel and this juxtaposing thing. Under the Arab rule, if you're a religious Jew, you did well. If you start becoming less religious, that's when problems started arising. When there's like, oh, you, you don't want to be so Jewish? Well, why don't you become a Muslim then? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas under Christian rule is the less Jewish you were, hey, you're doing good. Mm. Whereas the more Jewish you were, they look down on. So they're mm. going back to once again, fear and all that. Yeah. And who started the modern state of Israel? The European Jews. Mm. Yeah, sure. There was some... Um, from the Arab world that were living here, there were some Jerusalemites who have been here for who knows yeah. how many years. People that never yeah, I think left. people people don't really know that there's been a continuous line of Jew Jewish presence. But as of that, so the, the European land. Judaism really kind of 
it, it forced a lot of things on it. It forced that kind of fear into stuff. And yeah, coming back, it enforced the mentality that they had living in Europe, mm. which created a lot of the problems as well. Yeah, no, I can see that. Yeah. Whereas because of that also, as things went along, and because it, even, not just that, it didn't come from the European villagers. It came from the European bourgeois, from mm. the people that were living in the city, from the people who had it well. Yeah. The not the religious Jews. Mm. And they kind of, all right, we're kind of forced to take in all the, the survivors of the Holocaust. Yeah. We would have rather seen them perish too, but fine, fine. You guys come in, the religious ones oh, or the wow. non-religious. We'll take them in. We're nicer to you than the American non, the American conservative reform communities were that wrote to the government and were successful in petitioning them to send back boats that eventually got killed in concentration camps. We'll take you in. Yeah. Yeah. And as a result, that also destroyed a lot of the tribal mentality that was preserved to some degree mm. amongst the communities that lived that. And so where do you see this that's still alive today is kind of in the Hasidic circles where, okay, maybe those are not the original tribals because there's like a weird reckoning in every tribal. It's someone who's part of a Hasidic group other than maybe Chabad or yeah. Breslov is not going to move to a community that does not already have a group of their Hasidim mm. or someone close enough to it that they can do it. Okay. People don't just up and leave. Mm. They have to have a good reason to leave. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Which is why in most communities, both in Israel and certainly in America, you see the Hasidic groups cloistered around certain areas. Mm. And if they go, with the exception of kind of lone individuals, if they're going to go to a new community, they send a delegation. It's never, oh, we're going to send one individual. Maybe we'll send one individual to scout it out, but we're going to send a delegation, at least 10, 15 men okay. to go and start the community so that we're still kind of this, this tribalness. Yeah, yeah. The problem is because many of us came from families that did get more relaxed and religious or joined the community at some point or another. We're, that's part of our thing is we're searching. It's like, wh what is our source? Mm -hmm. Are we really somebody who joined at an earlier stage? Are we somebody who has an actual tribe and doesn't know which tribe it is? Yeah. Are we all from Judah? It's... Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's think. so complicated. It's like, so where does the, the lost tribes of Israel that were completely lost, you know, some of them could be, you know, intermixed with, with, with Correct. Jewish, what we would call the Jewish people today. Absolutely, and absolutely. Then you have, you know, have the Ethiopians coming from Africa, you know, where do they fit? And you have, Many, you know, I know you have the Falashmura that come from... I, from, yeah, also I think somewhere it's also, in, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. they're, they're from Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Who are yeah. the ones that came, Bnei Menashe? Bnei Menashe are Indians. From India, yeah. And it's such a big mix, you know, and that's what it says in the, in the prophecies, how God will bring the people from the four corners of the world back together. And he, and he says he will also, he says he will also include other people that yeah. he will invite, right? Look, and yeah. they will become part of the new, it says where you will be, that, that's where your tribe will be. You will, you will find your tribe. <laughs> yeah. It's, and be included. In the, in the, and all of us are searching. There's definitely a very spiritual draw to things. That's why some people yeah. feel more connected to one part of the country than to another. Yeah. I think that's also, unfortunately, when you see people moving abroad, 
Jews. It's like they're part of people that are going to at best maybe be. I mean, I don't know how it's going to come out. It doesn't mean that they're not of the sons of Israel, but mm. maybe some of the people who are practicing Torah bar moving abroad are not of the sons of Israel at the end of the day. And they come from not necessarily impurity. Mm. It's not necessarily a wrong thing. It's just that's where they belong. Yeah. And that's why they're so attracted to it. Yeah. It's, Can we take a pause? Yeah, absolutely. Let's go. We're rolling. We're rolling. <clears throat> So the one more thing that I want to say on that topic actually is in terms of, is my wife all good? It's fine. Okay. Yeah. So the one more thing that I want to say on that, and then we'll kind of reel back a bit, is that about these lost people, there's many amongst even the Palestinians that, mm. the modern day Palestinians who are Muslims, that some know that they're from the tri- sons of Israel, some know they're not. I mean, you talk to them, they like to look. Oh, really? They say yeah. that they're, they might be from the tribes of israel they can't say it publicly it's hard i mean there is certain there are some there's a community in yatta i've yet to visit them that are like actually jewish supposedly like they don't Hmm. mingle they keep to themselves they don't marry out it's very kind of inter but they're muslim no 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 there's one that's not they're they're actually like torah following all right i've yet to have met them but they're they're in yatta by hevron okay and amongst the others you talk to me and they're like yeah well Look, we converted to Christianity to save our lives and to Muslims. So, yeah, it's very possible. Yeah. Like, I mean, people that have names like Al Mathri, Al Lunani, names like that, Ayaraki, are probably less likely. Yeah. And more likely people that came here from those countries. But, yeah. Okay. So, is it? I, can I add something to this? Yeah. So, because I always think about this as well when I see the Arab population here, the, the Palestinians and Israel and this conflict we're having, and they're on that side and we're on this side, but they're also here in the ancient hills of Israel, right? They're living here among us. And it makes me think of of two things. It makes me think of this... this Maybe they're the lost tribes. <laughs> one, one thing it makes me think of is um, when Moshe... Right before he, he dies, he gives this, um, you know, this, this song or prayer at the mountains, right? Yeah. Hazinu. Um, and he says there that, you know, that we will, he will, you know, God will hide his face from us at some point because, you know, of all our idolatry and moving away from him. And then it says that, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to quote here from, it's, the, it's called Devarim or Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, I can never say that. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32. Come on. 21. You, no. You're from South Africa. You would have never seen that. There was a... Yeah, I'm also Afrikaans, naturally. So, But in any case, 20, verse 21, it says, they have, They've provoked my jealousy with a non-God, provoked my anger with their vanities. Thus, I provoke their jealousy with a non-people, provoke their anger with a foolish nation. So that makes me, sometimes makes me wonder about... The Palestinian people, you know, is that a because it's such a new, you know, there are actually Arabs that came from all these different Arab countries and were gathered together, and now they formed this this non-nation that doesn't yeah. have a history, but they're the Palestinian people, and they do they do vex us, you know, they do attack us and and do these violent things so, towards us. But on the other hand, okay, before you say something, but on the yeah. other hand, I also have this this prophecy of. Ezekiel, where he talks about how he will bring 
these two sticks together. You know, you, this is the stick of Yosef, that's Ephraim, um, from the tribes of Israel, and the stick of Yehuda, and that he will bring them together. And if we think about those two tribes historically, is that they were in conflict with one another, like they were killing each other, right? They were both from, yeah. from Israel, but they were, we were fighting each other and we were in conflict. Ephraim's and now he's bringing them to... The tribe of the Samaritans. Okay, so, and they're bringing them all together, and then he will, be, he will make them one. So it's actually a very beautiful um, prophecy. I just want to read a, a few parts of it. Um, so he says to them, Say, <clears throat> So says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Yosef, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companion, and I will place them within, with the stick of Yehuda, and I will make them into one stick, and they shall become one in my hand. And the sticks upon which you shall write shall be in your hand before their eyes. And say to them, So says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side, and I will bring them to their land, and I will make them into one nation, and in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be to them as a king, and they shall no longer be two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more, and they shall no longer defile themselves with their idols, with their detestable things, or with all their transgressions. And I will save them from all their habitations in which they have sinned, and I will purify them, and they shall be to me as a people, and I will be to them as a god. And my servant David shall be king over them, and one shepherd shall be for them all, and they shall walk in my ordinances and observe my statutes and perform them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given to my servant, to Yaakov, wherein your forefathers lived. And they shall dwell upon it, they and their children and, the, and their children's children, forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. And I will form a covenant of peace with them. An everlasting covenant shall be with them. And I will establish them and I will multiply them and I will place my sanctuary in their midst forever. And my dwelling place shall be over them and I will be to them for a God. And they shall be to me as a people and the nations shall know that I am, you know, in Hebrew, yud Hey and vav Hey, who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. By the way, for future reference, you can I just say Havaya? Havaya. That's a, that's a, a way of saying the name, yeah. Without blaspheming, not without saying the name, but at the same time giving a lot of credence to it because it comes from a rearranging of the name. Okay. Avaya. I think about that. I think about the name a lot, and I do. Um, I do see. Uh, you know, I understand that there's this prohibition of speaking out the name. But I don't. I don't really want to talk. Send, go into depth. Send me this at some point. The the reference. Yeah, sure. Where it's so like, yeah, this is Ezekiel, Ezekiel like chapter thirty-seven. Thirty-seven. Right that time. From nineteen till the end. Um, yeah, I don't want to go into depth with the name, but. Um, there's, there, it seems to me that there's a correlation between God hiding his face from us and, and us not speaking his name and pronouncing his name, actually. Mm. When, you, when you look at when he says he's taking his name away, 37, he's hiding his face. Yeah, 37. 
And all the prophecies concerning the end time prophecies, all of them talk about how he will reveal his face and we will call on his name. We will and be saved, you know. Yeah. So there's this correlation to me. And I, I personally, you know, I'll, I'm happy to confess this, <laughs> is that I, I do, you know, like when I pray and when I bless my children and when I read for myself, I do pronounce the name. Like I, I make a point of doing that. Because I feel that... You're saying the way that it's written there? That it's written, yeah. Interesting. Because I feel that... Uh, and, and I do understand all the reasons for why we say there's a pro why there's a prohibition, a prohibition exists. I do understand all those reasons. Um, but there's something in speaking God's name that makes him kadosh. Because if everybody just have the same talk about God, you know, that, you know, everybody in the world has a God. Everybody in the world can say, my God is like a father to me or have all these other attributes that we call God. Yeah. Listen, but there's only one that has a prohibition, by the way. It's only one that has a name and that, and, and it's, yeah, it's true. It's more about what the meaning <clears throat> of the name is. You know, he who was, he who is, and he will be. That's really describing this is kind of a description of God. It's like the collective consciousness over all history and time over all people. So one of the interesting things, I'm trying to remember the prohibition on pronouncing it. I don't know if that's like an actual written prohibition in the Torah Shabiktav anywhere. No, it's, it's not. not. In the right? Torah, it's actually, there's a place where it's commanded that we do swear by the name. And people mm -hmm. used to do this. They used to say, as Yudhei lives, yeah. Yah, in short, as Yah lives, they to, would swear in his name. To say the name, I think part of it comes up from the fact that traditionally, if you, there became a certain set of vowels that were assigned to it, but they're not necessarily even, that's not even necessarily. Right yeah, there's up. a question of what is the correct vowels, Nahon. I know that that's, that's a thing. I think it's a matter of it's not necessarily, well, one inter understanding that not even have vowels at all, mm. that the vowelization of it is heavily dependent upon the aspect being evoked, which is why I don't know how familiar you are with Sfardis Sidorium, the Erot yeah. Mizrach. No, I'm not that familiar. Not in necessarily the, in things of like Tehillim and places like that, it's written without Nikudot. Mm. But they'll write it that way and they'll actually write hidden under the hay. They write yeah. the letters Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud to kind of like, there's a connection for that and things. For Adonai, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But there's also, if you look in the, in some of the prayers, and for sure in the, the Amidah, the standing Shimon Esra, the 18, which is really 19, whatever, <laughs> lesson yeah. prayer, each one has a different set of vowelizations. Okay. And it's based on its connections to the model of Sirot, different of different traits and attributes, both emotive okay. and intellectual. Interesting. And that, and that relates to a different way of makeup of the body and the human and things. And it's okay. there's a lot of Kabbalistic meditations based on that. Yeah. And so I think that one of the reasons why this kind of prohibition came about actually was connected more to something related to that, but also that in terms of when you're pronouncing it, 
I don't think the pronunciation necessarily matters so much as the intentions that a person has in their meditation. Yeah, of course, I mean, um, intention is probably more important. Although um, I do know that there is um, one of the reasons, and it might, I don't know if it's the main reason, but one of the reasons that, they were, that the prohibition started when acted was because the Romans crucified Jewish people for speaking the name was praying to our God. They, they are the ones that came and said, no, you will all pray, say only good, that's the name of God, only, only one universal um, name for a deity, and we have to adopt this and we're not allowed to, to call on the name of our, our God. And they actually crucified um, people for speaking out the name. And then as a result of that, and I, and I think this is in the Mishnah as far, I, I, I've got no idea where, I'll to give you a reference to that, but that there was then the prohibition of speaking the name because to prevent people from yeah, I don't, being circumcised. I know I've seen uh, it I don't remember. Crucified. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, it's fascinating and it's, it's something that I really, um, I would say it makes me, it almost makes me think of this, you know, there's this curse in Hebrew that not, not to speak a person's name, what's it called, Yeshu, yeah. which is, I think I do have it here, it means Yamashemo. Yeah. Yamashemo, it's <clears throat> is to blot out a person's name and his memory. And, uh, yep. you know, and there's this, this, there's so many this times in the Torah where God says, "This is my my name. It's a memorial. It's a memory. It's a memorial for all generations." And so, yeah, it's just that connection with, you know, how we will His face will be revealed when we call on His name. Or you, come back our to salvation. You know. My wife was close with this one rabbi in Chicago, Rabbi Ephraim Friedman, who was a big posik and one of the top rabbis in the city at the time and he used to always say when she'd bring up the topics and all different stuff and not this one but yeah enough things he would say it's a symptom of of exile yeah that we've been in exile so long now and things are so forgotten that we don't know how to pronounce god's name it's not a, it's not necessarily a matter of we don't know how to pronounce it's we don't know even some of the reasons for things uh anymore. yeah we don't know why things were started and this and that and what it really means. We're so far removed. That's very interesting. We, we know. And there's just so much confusion. That all this mm. confusion comes. I mean, look. It's thousands of years. That's what Exile does. But there's an interesting verse. Look, there's so many things that we practice and we do a certain way. And we look at it. Oh, it's been done this way all the time. We're very anachronistic like that. Yeah. But it's only been done for maybe three, four hundred years. I mean, look. Find me in... In the Shulchan Aruch, the Jewish Code of Law, where he discusses the Shabbat evening prayers, Kabbalat Shabbat. Yeah. Find me where he discusses it. Oh, God, I don't it's know. not in there. <laughs> oh, it doesn't even It's not it. in there. Why is it not in there? Because they only started doing it as a formalized service during his lifetime. After oh, okay. he written it, that's when the Kabbalists hanging out in Svat started choosing, all right, we're going to say this of Tehillim on Friday afternoon, standing on the hilltops, facing to the west, watching the sun go down, mm. with the Shechina in the west at that time, we're going to say these prayers facing west, which is why, which is why at the end of L'Chadudi, everyone turns around and faces the back of the shul. 
which is a mistake, actually. It's a mistake. Because the the synagogues in the West were facing eastward, Mm. people get up to do that. It's a remembrance to that. Okay. That direction. Well. But really, you should be facing whatever direction. You should be facing west, not the back of the shul. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, it's to greet the the bride as it comes in. No, the the, the Kabbalists were facing to the west, watching the setting sun. And with then the, the story of Shabbat. The, the, the yeah. God, with the Shekhinah, the, the divine presence dwelling in the West, as they say. Yeah. So they face the West. Okay. Now, if well. you go to some synagogues, if you come to our synagogue, for example, at, they only do it for the end of the Chadodi, of course. They turn, and we're facing southwards because we're north of Jerusalem, so we turn 90 degrees to our right and yes. face the West. And you can see who's a, who's a visitor in the, in the synagogue and doesn't know about this because... They'll sit there and they'll turn around to the back of it and face the door and things. And you're like, nah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. But, but it, what's what's fascinating about what you're saying is that there is actually uh, in uh, I have to look it up, but it's in Jeremiah. No, is it Isaiah? Isaiah talks about this. Um, there's this group of, of I love you, how you know these things and you see these connections. I wish I this is, them and knew them like you. <laughs> yeah. There's this group of Yodim that us, it's in the past, in the time of the Babylonian time, I think. And he's telling them that they, because of their sins, they're going to exile to, to Egypt. Okay. And that when they go into Egypt, one of the curses they will have is that they will no longer remember how to, to call on the name of God. They will yeah. forget his name. And they'll go around and they'll think they're going to be there in safety because they're fleeing here and they're going to go live there in Egypt and be safe. And then calamity is going to stri- strike them and they're going to want to call on God's name. And they won't remember what his name is. Yeah. Well, look, there's a question so, whether or not the Torah is even the right thing. The Torah is the right thing. Like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean right thing? <laughs> I'm saying that there's no errors in the Torah and things think people uh, because it's like, they talk about how during the times of certain kings, they uncovered a Torah scroll. They they'd forgotten what it was in the Torah and this and that. And they found a Torah scroll and they read it. It's it's and then, in the time of uh, King Yoash, uh, jo- I think. Yoash. I don't remember which king. There, there's a few times that they bring up the Torah. Yeah, it's the high priest. Reading, like, the high priest they, finds the Torah there, and, and it's been missing. They haven't had a Torah for a hundred exactly. years. And then again, in the times of Ezra, it talks about how he translates it back into Hebrew from Aramaic. Oh, well. There's a discussion about something there. So it's like, well, so what's going on there? Yeah. It's like... I think what... in, in the, fact, the fact that, by and large, the Masoretic Torah, the Jewish Torah, and the Samaritan Torah are, by and large, the same, mm. I think that alone is a good proof that we're on to something. Yeah, yeah. But... The fact that the difference between the two Torahs implies one of three things, right? One of three things. Either the Torah is wrong, but let's assume that it's not. Yeah, but then you're saying wrong about something or wrong in total? Wrong. Okay. Wrong altogether. We're not going to go down that path. We're, We're believers. But then it introduces one of two things. Either one of those two Torahs is wrong and the other is right. Yeah meaning either the Samaritan or the Masoretic. Now, there are other ones as well, but let's just keep it in a simple sense. Okay. Either one of the two of them is right, or both are right. And when Moshe wrote the Torah at the end for each of the different tribes, there was intentional differences in the Torahs for whatever reasons that God revealed to him and not to us, or maybe not even revealed to him. Mm-hmm. 
but okay. we don't have enough information to know whether or not yeah i don't know both right i don't know if i agree ways, about that or one is right and the other has errors in it i, I would but the fact that there's this overlap that there's yeah. about 30 to 40 major differences okay which god willing i'll know what they are soon because i'm working with a friend who's writing a book he's samaritan okay he's writing a book on it so i'm working with him on it and i told him that that's one of the things we have to include is the major differences in the torahs okay. my differences we should discuss there's about four to five thousand of them or something somewhere four four five thousand i think it is yeah minor differences we're talking like grammatical differences spelling differences yeah yeah, yeah. or a missing a missing verse or an added verse or words or things that don't change anything mm. but maybe add a little character or something okay yeah yeah. the meaning stays the, the same. meaning stays the same but it's like oh he did this with his right hand and yeah. probably just like okay we, we don't know what he did okay I, i'm just making this up i don't know there mm. but the 30 to 40 major differences not all of them but most of them have to deal with things being changed location to grizim yeah, yeah. Which says greeting. That's and the pre who is the priest and the, that's the violent. Well, nothing about the priest. Okay, there's the no difference. Thing. No, no, there's no difference there as far. They're as also Levites then, supposedly. What? They're also from Le- Levi. Absolutely. Okay. Wow. Absolutely. The where they see the split between the two peoples is from the times of Eli and Uzi, mm. who were I want to say they're two brothers. I don't know if they're brothers or cousins or what it was. But they had a fight. In the time in our Torah? Like what? It's not the Torah. It's in the times of... Yeah, after Shmuel. End of Shoftim. Times of Shmuel. Okay. Before Shmuel was born, basically. Uh, Okay, so Eli was the the daddy. The two sons... were. Eli was the high priest. Yes. Shmuel had... uh, What was the father of Shmuel? I don't remember his father. Shmuel was... um, Eli was the priest. Shmuel was... I can't remember his dad's Elkanah. name, but yeah, Elkanah, yeah, 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 you're correct. Yeah. So, and he had the two wives, Penina and Hannah. Yeah. So, Eli was a high priest that goes to and rebukes Hannah, whatever. So, supposedly, before he moved the Mishkan to Shiloh and did things there, there was a debate where it should be. Okay. And he says there, and we're still waiting, this is where God wants the Mishkan to be now, and we're still waiting for the place to be. Okay. And Uzi said, what are you talking about? The Torah says that you're being grizim, you're, you're changing things. Yeah. Now's the time to go up to Grizim and move it up there. Okay. And that's where the split happened. Okay, according to the... According to the Samaritans. Samaritans. Okay, interesting. Mm. Well, when it comes to Torah and truth, um, I mean, me personally, uh, what I see in the Torah, and this, and I'm talking mostly about if I look at the Pshat, you know, is what, what we've done, you know, like people think of of I guess it's Judaism and they think oh that's the that's um the religion of the Bible but there's so many things in that covenant that we're not doing like we have we don't whether or not we can or cannot you know regardless we don't have this the temple at the moment we don't have the, the that system we don't have the Levites and the Kohanim um doing their jobs that's a part of the the covenant we might we we not really doing the Shemitah. I mean, we're doing some form of the Shemitah. No, don't give me started on Shemitah. No, I don't want to go too don't deep don't into give that. Don't start on Shemitah. We, <laughs> but the whole idea of Shemitah is when people get released from their servitude and the land rests, is that those people that get released from their servitude, they go to their own land. 
They go back to their own land yeah. to farm their own land. And their, lands, their land gets released. So we don't have that because people don't own, a lot of people don't own their own land here, right? We don't, we don't have that system set up. That is, you know, that is the, the, the covenant that we made is with those, you know, those are just some of the Torah, some of the laws, some of the Torah. But there's a lot of, I, I, can, I see that and I see that's what true freedom is. True freedom is if every person owns his own land and yeah. you, cannot, you cannot be taken away from you. Nobody can say it doesn't belong to you or you have to pay some money to be there. You don't have to pay rent to be there. You don't have to pay taxes to be on that land. That is freedom. If, you, if it's too difficult for you to make a living on that land, you can go and be an apprentice a servant at somebody else who then takes care of you for six years and you learn from them how to you know, be good um, or produce food and be a good farmer or businessman or whatever you want to do and go back to your own land and try again. So that you survive, you know, and that's really, that's a system that if you really think about it with, you know, in today's world, we have all this, a lot of, there's a lot of poverty and there's a lot of people living in the streets, you know, yeah. especially in the West and America. And, and that would solve, if you have a system like this, that would solve that kind of, that problem. Absol Absolutely. But where's the money in that system? Yeah, well, that's, uh, <laughs> that's why this system that we have now is a broken system. Correct. Correct, because the people who get the power don't want to give up the power. Yeah. They're very happy about that. And to move things back towards peace a little bit, that's one of the biggest roadblocks is if it doesn't bring money, it's not interesting to the peacemakers. Yeah, because <clears throat> everything is a thing. We, we tend to put everything into a monetary value. Did you see the paper that came out that recently where they showed this correlation between the influx of money from America to the Palestinian territories and the Palestinian Authority and the influx of terror? Oh, no. And it basically follows the exact God. same trend. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> With a slight offset where the money comes in. And there's insane and amounts of money coming from Europe, too, like the Germans and Correct. the European Union, yep. the ports you know, bring so much money into the Palestinian areas. And, they, and they look at all these buildings that they build. They just go and build and houses and roads and all that. It's all supported by the European Union. Yeah. Peace is not... That's the shame. That's the real That's the real downside to peace activism and peace-seeking. There's, there's a false peace-seeking as well. It's just Absolutely, about money and uh, about the influence. Because what does it mean to be Rodesh Shalom, a peace-seeker, runs after peace? It really is an altruistic thing at the end of the day, because if, if you're really seeking true peace. It comes from inside, no right? There's no money in true peace. Yeah. And most people who are going after the peace, or the, the money thing, it's... They re the, as soon as you throw them a, a legitimate solution, something that will happen, people switch tunes because they realize, oh gosh, I'm 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 gonna be out of a job. Yeah. But war, oh, war, war makes money, man. Money. <laughs> they're they're the band from they're the punk band out of California from the '70s and '80s called the Dead Kennedys. Oh yeah. And they did this song. It's kind of a spoken word, over, <clears throat> over one of their other songs in the background, and they called it Kinky Sex Makes the World Go Round. Mm -hmm. And the entire song is that, talking about this fictitious conversation between, I think, was it the, 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 the head of war, the State Department of the U.S., and the Prime Minister of England. And they're coming together with this plan that they've already talked about with the Russians and all the other nations. They're all like, all right, 
Here's how we're going to keep the wars going, to keep the people oppressed, to keep the money flowing. Yeah. And there's so much truth to it. It's, it's a song. Mm. It's one of these timeless songs. It's like. Yeah, and we see this in the world today. Like, oh, you know, we're going into this, what's called a war economy, basically, throughout the world, where they just saying, okay, let's manufacture more weapons and <laughs> have look, wars. And Look, if, if, there was autumn, if there was instantaneously peace in Israel, the economy would collapse. Mm. I don't know what percentage of Israel's economy is defense. I'm sure we can I think it's, it a big, it's, it's a big it's, part. Absolutely, it. it's a big chunk. Yeah, it's probably between a quarter and a half, if not more, even. Let's see. I mean, it's it's one of the real challenges to peace is that people work in defense. What do they say? Defense budget for this was for the year twenty twenty one. Defense. I'm yeah. saying the defense industries. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You have to look up what percentage of the GDP is. Israel GDP of defense. That's what you need to know. It's about the same as spending budget. Yeah, that's just the budget again. And that's that's twenty four billion. Military expenditure in Israel was five percent, but that's just military expenditure. Mm. That's still not all the Yeah, like the Raphael Industries. Yeah, we I, make, I, a, we make a lot of money out of war, that's Look, for sure. it's not the largest anymore, but at one point, Israel Aerospace Industries was the largest employer in the country. Hmm. Yeah. It's something like 15,000 employees. Yeah. And, all right, let's say you've got, what, 1 million to 2 million working adults or something, right? Yeah. That's, that's just from one company. Mm. But how much money is actually there as well is the other issue. Yeah, no, it's, it's not necessarily uh, the amount drives, you're drives the, the economy. Amount. So how it's how do we entire how do we establish peace? Uh, what is what is what do you think? Like oh. how do we like with the initiatives that you're involved with? That that's why it has to be a grassroots thing because it needs to have a snowball effect, mm. and that's why I love this line that I throw back. Anyone who's heard me give an interview before or give a talk, I always come back to this: the idea of let peace break out. Uh, Which, all right, <laughs> fine. I stole the, I kind of stole the line from Monty Python and the, <laughs> the world's funniest joke sketch. But it's true. Just as war can break out, so can peace. Yeah. But the thing is, you need to do it in such a way that it can break out. Which means, you have to build it up like a snowball, where slowly at the grassroots level, the people do it and shatter their fears. And mm. th- this goes back to. Um, I'm debating whether or not to say this because it's a very, it's a very controversial statement. No, I love controversial stuff. This <laughs> this podcast but, is all about controversies. But uh, I hate to say this. People always want to say, oh, the Palestinians need to become a tail. Palestinians need to become a tail. It's like, Palestinians I, what? Palestinians need to become a tail and become a peace partner. And isn't that that you need an active peace partner. All right. First off, you, there's, there's two aspects of peace. Mm. There's the, the peace on the paper and there's the peace on the ground. Mm-hmm. And the two are independent of one another. Yeah. And if there's no peace on the ground, the peace on the paper is not worth the ink it's written with, the paper, nothing. Yeah. Because it won't sustain. Yeah. You need both. And in fact, doing peace on paper, it's rather simple. If they wanted to make an agreement, they could do it overnight. Yeah. And solve everything. Mm. All right, you're going to have negotiations that could take much longer. But if they really want to, they could say, overnight, here's an agreement, we're doing it. Mm. 
but they're not interested in that. And that's a whole separate issue because okay. as we said, it's clear why they don't want that because the money mm. stopped flowing. Yeah. But they don't need to worry about that even because the piece on the ground doesn't exist in the first place. Yeah. If that existed, once you get to that stage, and that's the whole idea of peace breaking out, is once you get to the state that there's enough inertia on the ground and people wanting, legitimately wanting peace, Yeah. which I'm going to challenge people and say that the majority of people don't want peace. Do you and think it, even more so yeah. to be controversial. And we'll come back. Just bear with me for a minute as I explain yeah. this all. Okay. The Palestinians want peace more than the Israelis do. Okay, well. Much more. Which is... Why do you say it's that? It's a backwards thinking thing. Because, so first off, if we have the peace on the ground, then we can get that going and then the governments will kind of have to throw their hands up the peace breakout idea. So why is that? Because Israelis... We don't feel we need them to live together. We don't feel we need them. The Palestinians realize that they need the other side. They want to be with us. Mm-hmm. It's hard for them to say it and do that because you have this vocal minority that goes out and does terror. And that's what people recognize, the vocal minority. Mm-hmm. It's, it's always the case, a vocal minority that speaks for, that's speaking on behalf of the majority, but doesn't actually represent their views. Okay. Whether or not they're elected officials or people are just doing things. But... That being said, so why is it that the Israeli, I see the Palestinians, Palestinians make effort to go and meet Israelis. They go and make effort to get jobs there. How many Israelis make, go and make jobs and do stuff working with Palestinians? Mm-hmm. You have the few that do like the contractors that do it because they want cheap labor. They yeah. want to profit more. But on top of it, the onus really falls on the Israeli right now because the way that the system is set up, Palestinians can't freely go into Israeli territory. Mm. They need special permission. So only some people are ever going to be allowed to do that. Yeah. There are a few shopping centers that are over the green line that one can go to. Mm. Like the Rami Levy at Samatagush, at Gush at Zion Junction. There is one of the few places that people can come together at the Israeli-controlled territory. Okay. Freely. You don't okay. need special permission. But if a Palestinian wants to go inside of a Yishuv and buy these days... Mm. They can't do that. Yeah. The only way they're getting in is if they have a work permit. Yeah. Or if their spouse, one of the spouses, is Israeli that's living in a Palestinian. But I think it's just important to tell so people as well that it's hold not on. a race. It's not a racist issue. Issue. No. It, it's so complex. So hold on a second. Yeah. So the Palestinians, the onus is not on them in that case. They do have the onus, and you'll see why. What their onus is in a second. The Israeli. He can't legally go to Area A. Okay. Fine. Area B, he is legally allowed to go, but there are a lot of laws and things in place to discourage him from ever going there. Mm. Which is why, on one hand, when I, I, I love the, the idea of these bypass roads, yeah. because let's face it, the transportation network here was not set up for cars. Yeah. It's an ancient system that was improved over time from horse and buggy and footpath to support cars. Yeah. But you go through some of the villages and on some of the original roads and stuff, and you get into the center of some of the villages, and it's like they just couldn't make it wider than two, than a car's worth. There's some villages where you drive through, and this was the main road. Yeah. Now, these are roads that are not main Israeli roads anymore, but they go through villages, and you're like, and you literally have to stop and wait for another car to come through yeah. because it's too narrow. The buildings were just built too close together in the center of town. And until somebody decides we're going to knock a building down, Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's like you'll go into town and you have to like weave through to do it. But that's because they improve. So when you build these new roads, you can now build a road that actually supports car travel at high speed. 
and shortens time. Yeah. It also makes one who goes into the village a little bit safer because they're not dodging cars that are flying through. I mean, mm. let's face it, Nabi Elias, we, let's use Nabi Elias as the example, which is yeah. another village here that in the past five years received a bypass. There's like four or five years ago that they received a bypass road. At first they were against it, and then, but they came to realize at the end of the day, okay, yeah, there was a dip in their economy at the start mm. because people weren't throwing through anymore. And so they didn't, when, so it's convenient to stop, you have to make an effort. Yeah. But after it got past that, people start coming in and it's even better for them now because at least on Saturdays, I don't know this firsthand. I know this just from them telling me. So the Russians really love going there. Uh, okay. And, and they the do the days, shopping on Saturdays. On Saturdays, on because of the main road, you still had a lot of traffic going through. Yeah. Now, you have tons of foot traffic. The Russians all come in, they pack in, they love hanging out there, buying things. Oh, wow. And because you don't have the traffic, as much traffic flying through, it's you're getting the traffic that's coming just to shop, basically. Mm. With Funduk, if they can figure out where to put it and not cause problems and everything. Yeah. I think a similar type of thing will happen with time. It'll take time. Same with Hawara. I'm not against it mm. for the travel. Better, better infrastructure, and the, road better infrastructure. infrastructure yeah. And from this perspective of safety. Yeah. From a perspective of security, I think we're, they use that to tout these, they tout the security thing. Oh, the better security, it's safer in that sense. But mm. it also deeper drives that wedge between the two sides. Yeah. Which goes back to this point that I'm trying to make right now. Sorry. This is, <laughs> <laughs> but why the onus falls on the Israelis. So the Israelis can go to these villages that are area B legally. Mm. Okay. Buying things there. All right. You, there are certain legal implications that make it questionable mm. on a legal standpoint, but it still happens. And the government's not like saying they're like saying, no, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, like for example, when you cross into, when you cross over the checkpoints, it says big signs at the thing. Big these big yellow signs. Do not pass your car over to the Palestinian Authority for repairs. Blah 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 blah. It's illegal. Okay. How many people take their cars into the villages to repair them? Probably a lot of people. A lot of people do. <laughs> a lot of people do. But if the government wanted to make problems for it, they could. Mm. There have been instances where they've stopped people at the checkpoints, and in some cases, even taking away cars from people. Oh wow! So there are laws on the table that they could enforce. Hmm. They don't always enforce them, but they yeah. could. So when you have these villages like that, it's on the Israelis now to mm. stop in these villages where people, anyone can stop yeah, and get out and talk to people, get to know people, realize that, yeah, these are people who have lives. Too. They're humans. Yeah. They're humans. Just All right. Like us. Maybe some of them are really brothers and sisters. Maybe some of them are cousins. Maybe some are no connection with other people that have been brought here from elsewhere that have nothing to do with anything. Mm. But at the end of the day, we're all human. We're all we're all God's creations in the world. Yeah. And until we can get to that level, you can't have peace. Mm. That's part of the issue is you need to have that connection. Yeah. It's like the whole thing people saying about good fences make good neighbors. Yeah. If you put up a big fence, you're you're not making peace with your neighbor. You're just disconnecting from them. Yeah. That's true. So yeah. to here, if we go to a two state solution, what does that do? It's, we haven't made peace. Mm. Look, I come from South Africa and people, you know, we've, for good reason as well, you know, security reasons, but um, people make this live in their own prisons, you know, that they've constructed for themselves. Yeah. And this, it takes away freedom. Um, I just want to say that, you know, true freedom, freedom is obviously, it's between people, not freedom, I mean, peace, shalom, is between peoples. You know, it's something, it's collective. 
but there's a piece that comes from inside first. And I think, you know, I always think of it like this. If every single human being on the planet today, every single human being have peace inside of themselves, meaning they've dealt and they fought the wars uh, with, the, if, with their own darkness within them and they've triumph, triumphed. They, they triumph over the, the darkness and they are at peace with themselves and they've got no reason to be angry at anybody for what they say. You know, what, what people physically do to you is something different because that could be violence. But do not get reactive and angry at what is going on around us in the world and what the media is telling us and what, you know, the fear that people are trying, that, that are being put on us through the media and through other people. But to have that total peace within. If every single human being has that within them, then there, there would be no reason for war, any war, Correct. like even Russia and Ukraine. No reason Correct. for any war because you wouldn't want to hurt somebody else. You would be like um, fully at peace with yourself. And The problem is you've got these leaders who sit over us and go, we're unhappy. Yeah. We've got authority over you. So we're going to make you miserable. We're going to prevent you from seeing the truth and the comfort and the peace inside. We're going to squeeze down you from clamp down you from every which way we can. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it prevents that, that peace from developing with people. Yeah. Look, with, with all these people going towards like transgenderism and, and homosexuality, the woke, woke and all these ideology. Yeah. I'm not going to say that there's nobody who has that legitimately mm -hmm. has these intentions. If there were, then the Torah wouldn't necessarily... If, if they wouldn't be the mentioned, wouldn't yeah. speak about it. Just like there are people who have the impulse to kill, but yeah. they have to overcome it. I know people like that. I've, had, I've met people who've told me, it's like, I get the impulse to go out and strangle people. Wow. But I don't. Mm. The Torah told me I'm not allowed to do it. I don't do it. Yeah. Yeah, look... With homosexuality, same type of thing. The Torah says not to, but many people outside of the Torah world, they have in... They have the inner one. You have the you have some that feel that way, mm. and they choose to go towards it, or they choose to battle it. Some battle it and never disclose these 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 tendencies. Yeah, but you also have a society right now that's pushing this agenda to follow these tr these trends and do these things. Yeah, and so it's like you have people that are already unhappy on the inside, and here's a phone coming on the thing: do this, and you will be happy. It's like, well, maybe I should try this. Yeah, or, or the mainstream media that's just putting more fear into people as well. Correct. It's like um, you tell them, it's like, oh, if we build this wall, you'll feel safer. Yeah. And then you build the wall, and then the next day something happens, whether or not it was a planned something happened in conjunction to create fear, or something that someone just happened to get by around the wall and do it. All of a sudden, even yeah. though you have the wall, oh, well, the wall wasn't good enough. We need to build a better wall. Yeah. <laughs> Build on, build your prison, your own prison, even better. Yeah, and each in each person, they in each human being, there's an amount of good and amount of bad. You know that people have to make those choices. You know the, the the thoughts that arise that come in. We have the ultimate choice whether or not we're gonna follow that path of, of the path of good or the path of bad. We need to know the difference between what's what's good and what's bad, and that's that Torah. Um, directs us in that and uh, a lot of those things are, are kind of obvious as well 
you know, it's obvious that you, it's not good to go and go around and kill people or sleep with your neighbor's wife or lie to people. Yeah. Um, but it, the thing about that is also is the, this whole idea of absolute versus relative morals. Mm. And the thing is, without something like the Torah, without something that from a, the creator, mm. you can't have absolute morals. And I was like, oh, well, of course, killing people is wrong. It's like, no. You've just been raised with so much and from such an early age that you've come to believe that as an absolute and you see that. Yeah. But there are definitely societies that find it to be morally proper and whatnot. Maybe sometimes it's very selective killing. Look, we were, we, according to the Torah, we are supposed to stone um, people that commit certain sins. Correct. As, we a, don't. as a community, but we don't. So we're, we're also breaking the Torah in, Absolutely. in our way. Yeah. We find reasons to that's, get around. That's exactly why we need, uh, a, a, I would say, a, a, like Jeremiah puts it, Jeremiah in chapter 31, he talks about a renewed covenant. That's why we need it. Because you, we can't, you know, <laughs> what God expects of us, you and me, to go to our neighbor who's making fire on Shabbat and, and you know, bring him to the city and say, to the city gates or whatever, and say, okay, we saw this guy making fire, let's stone him, you know. I don't, I don't believe that God expects that of us at the moment, because when, but when we have a renewed covenant and we all agree on this, this is the Torah, you know, this is the covenant. We agree on, on this, on these rules that it's wise and wisdom, and it gives us, again, also all those things, mercy, peace, truth, long, loving kindness, um, justice and righteousness and those those attributes of God. Well, the thing is, we don't see it clear as day. Mm. I personally believe that if all the, all the quote-unquote non-religious Jews that drive on Shabbat, let's assume that it's clear that driving on Shabbat is a prohibition, right? We have to assume that. I mean, we didn't come from God directly. He didn't say, thou shalt not drive on Shabbat. Yeah. But we'll just use an example. We'll say that that's the example that do that. If they, if they saw the Torah clearly and they saw it, they, we wouldn't even need to convince them. Yeah, but they will. They would on their own just stop. Yes, an awakening. I, I, I pray for that too, for an awakening for people to see the, the justness in Shabbat and doing Shabbat and keeping Shabbat. I mean, that's the whole story with the wood gatherer, or which Stephen had to debate, was he gathering? What are he doing with wood? He was rebellious because he know this is we're not supposed to make fire, and he's like, "I'm gonna go out and pick, get wood and make fire." No, quite the contrary, actually. There is, <clears throat> so it, this is a understanding that I've seen through several different places and mished together over the years. So I can't tell you, okay, w- which parts are which anymore. But it's based on stuff from the Lubavitcher Rebbe my own thoughts and also thoughts from a rabbi that I knew in South Bend, Indiana, Rabbi Fred Neville. Okay. Who thought, why was he going out and doing it? Not because he was a rebel. No. Here you are, you're right after the sin of the spies. And it was like, another 38 years? Mm. We haven't suffered enough? Is he committing suicide and saying? No, he's not committing suicide. <laughs> it's like, no more. They're about to, to give up on Torah. What are we going to do? And so he said, no, I'm going to be self-sacrificing. I'm going to go out and put myself in a situation where they have to kill me to force them to enforce the Torah and do it. 
So I'm going to go, I'm going to gather wood. And they say he was warned and he continued. So they brought it forth. And what are we supposed to do? And so he's testing. They bring it forth and God told Moshe, stone him. So the people say, all right, we got to stone him. Yeah. And it sends a message. No, the Torah still does apply. Shabbat is that. But it also raises this interesting question. Should he have been stoned? Because here he's doing something for the sake of heaven. Yeah. So really he should be exempted from being killed because he did it for the sake of heaven to bring people back together. Yeah. But at the same time, that's an interesting, if we uh, don't apply the judgment that's due to him, yeah. then the message won't be received. Because then... And it, so, hold on, let me just finish yeah. the, the word. Right. So it comes down to true intention versus perceived intention. He didn't say, oh, I was doing it to teach you this message. This was an internal me teach message. Mm. Because if he said that, that's what I was doing, and this and that, and now you see, then they wouldn't have applied the teaching. They wouldn't have killed him because he was trying to teach a message. But we can only judge on, a heaven, on an earthly court based on a perceived intention, which was he was violating the Torah. Mm. So, Actions. So while in this earth, he is put to death, in the greater world, he actually, he, he served a very, very powerful purpose in teaching people that, no, you, God is not cutting himself out of the picture. The fact that you screwed up and now you added on 38 more years mm. to your wandering for a total of 40. No, you, you don't, don't give up. Mm. This is basically like the door thing. It's like, like we said before, Yeah, they had the short path, the long path. It was basically they're driving on the highway and it's like, here's the exit to get off and you forgot to get off and your next exit to make the U-turn is three hours away, mm. you better buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> Even speeding ain't going to help you that much. Yeah. <laughs> Yo. You got to double back and forget. <laughs> yeah. So we know that the, the promise of the, of the, the, this, the end of the story, or the, I don't know if it's the end of the story, but the end of the, you know, our prophecies that talk about how people come back to this land and we will be united again as one people. And we will turn to God and, and do His Torah or put His Torah in our hearts and call on His name again, right? And have peace. Like that's a result of doing this Torah as a nation together. So we will have peace. And I, I just want to say, because um, that I pray for that peace for us and for, for the whole world. It says that yeah. according to the dream of, uh, that Daniel interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, when he has, sees the statue and the stone that breaks, that those systems that were created by man over history, you know, it breaks those systems and it sets up this, this Torah that will grow into a mountain and then overtake the whole world. You know, it will become yeah. an example for the whole world, the Jewish people. Okay. And we will be blessed and they will see the blessing and it will spread over the world and peace will, will cover the earth. Because we will know, like, why would you want to kill somebody else? Why would you want to attack somebody? Because mm -hmm. we are, we, we, we're not afraid of them. We are at peace with ourselves. We want to help each other and and uplift one another. There's, it's, it's a God of abundance in a world that can produce for everybody and where there's space for everybody and where everybody can be happy and but own their own land. <laughs> You will not own nothing and be happy. You will own your own land and you will be happy. Yeah. Um, I've got one last question I want to ask you. But since you don't own anything because it's all God's. 
Yeah, of course. He, <laughs> he gives it, though. So you will own nothing and be happy. Yeah, but um, anyways, the, the last question I want to ask you is, who is Mashiach and what do we, what do we, where or who, who? Oh. like who is Mashiach? Like what do we look for? If, if you would can describe in your own words, like what do we look for in a human being? What, what attributes behind, behind the obvious stuff, you know, who Mashiach is from the line of David and, um, you know, the things that he has to do at the end of, uh, of, um, what's called the Acharit Yomim, the end of days or the last days. Um, what what would you what do we look for in a person a Mashiach? I think it's really gonna it's supposed to be someone that's supposed to shepherd in this period to help bring out the peace and I'd like to think maybe it's uh, my own greed and ego that it'll follow the kind of approach this kind of like clandestine snowballing approach, mm. but maybe he'll have some sort of a way of being able to just like get up and shout it out and the people will just like we'll be like. You know, he's right. Yeah. Rather than have to go door to door knocking on everyone's houses and fully making the change. But on the other hand, the the slowly built is much harder to tumble. Whereas if it's something that's built in a day, mm. it's more likely to fall. Whereas if you build a solid foundation that you take time and really build on. Yeah. That's interesting, yeah. It's part of the reason why <clears throat> the the Torah-based views, it's 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 hard to uproot because mm. it's been so many generations. It also affects Christianity. It affects Islam. Mm. But all, I, so, I think in a way, like all religions in a way, can be also be se- seen as systems of serving something. You know, it's systems. Yeah. <clears throat> There's a goal, like for, for instance, with Christianity, you know, how that developed was it was definitely exploited to control people and yeah. for money and gain and power, for sure. But don't tell me that our own religion wasn't also exploited for that I, purpose. Look, I, I, I don't want to criticize. There's plenty of that going on as well, unfortunately. I, 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 I don't want to criticize the, how do you say it, the house where I live. <clears throat> but... Um, I think when we really honestly look at the val- the attributes of God, and we can say, is that is that is, are those the attributes that the system is putting in the highest values? Because those attributes, all of them, as have in them love. You know, you can't have justice without. It's kind of a form of love. Truth is a form of love. Mercy and grace, obviously. You know, compassion, loving kindness. Um, long suffering or patience it's all connected to love right and that's where you have to look at and say is the system that we're looking at today actually based on the true source or has it deviated Mm. and if it's deviated how can we pull it back yeah but as i said you can't just make a big shift because if it's not founded right then just all crumbles Mm. if one person goes and says hey, we're doing X, Y, and Z mitzvot wrong. We need to go back and do it like this. And yeah. he just goes and does it publicly and makes a big statement about it. Maybe three or four other people will follow him. But what's more likely to happen, you're a heretic! Yeah. And kill him. Yeah. Whereas if he does it slowly, mm-hmm. 
and explains to people and shows them and people start doing things at first in private and then slowly start doing more together and then to a point where it's like you have one community two three four it becomes much stronger yeah it's like i remember there's this one individual who it's a shame that i never i knew i knew him personally at one point i met him it's a shame at the time i didn't know his story okay that I didn't get to see, like, I could send you sometime a link. There's on Chabad.org. There's this Rav uh, Yaakov Ephraim Parisi. Okay. Who grew up as, and became a minister. Mm. He was a pastor. And he started being a little bit oddball, so they sent him off <laughs> to the side to do his community. And so gave him the mission, like, we want you to go and become an expert in our boy. And he, in particular, he did the holiday of Passover, so we want you to learn about Passover. Okay. So he started learning about Passover, went back to the Torah, went to the things and started learning. Like, and I forget if it was the first year, or maybe the second or third year, he decides, you know what, my community is going to start keeping Passover. <laughs> they're going to sacrifice a real... Uh, I, don't know they, I don't think they sacrificed the lamb. <laughs> okay. But they're going to start keeping Passover <laughs> and eating matzah for a week and doing all these things and... So he started doing preaching then. He was seen as a little bit crazy. So they moved him to another location mm. and he started doing more. And him and his wife slowly started getting over more and more and becoming more, taking their communities, their community that they end up in in the end. I don't know how many actually converted ever from their community. I never heard that statistic. Okay. But dragging people along and be throwing out much more of the New Testament and some of the idol worship uh. things and getting back towards a Jewish lifestyle. But still calling themselves Christian because their boy did it. Don't forget. Oh uh, yeah. And it's just like, it's funny. It gets to the point where he's sitting there one time and he's sitting at home and it's, it's in December and he's reading. I forget where exactly. There's a few places that talks about it, how you're not allowed these trees and worship trees. And he's sitting there going like, oh gosh. And he looks up at the tree and he looks at the text and his wife comes in. And she's like, what'd you do? I didn't do anything yet. What did you do? Come look at this. Shows their face. He's like, well, what are you waiting for? Why is the thing still in here? <laughs> <laughs> they want to take out the tree. <laughs> so he has to down the tree. Pulling the tree out of the house before <laughs> December 25th. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious, yeah. Oh, yeah, his, his story is great. And he, t- he goes through and you see it's like, because he did it so mm. slowly, it's like, it's so firm and so deep within him. Yeah. It's yeah. one of the reasons why when people go through the whole conversion process and I, and we, we discussed a bit about it before, but when we go through and on one end, I hate the abuse that the conversion system does mm. on people who go through it. But at the same time, I also get it because you don't want somebody to just yeah, overnight convert yeah. because you see people who get some of these, it needs to be difficult yeah. conversions and mm. it doesn't stick. I must tell you just doing the circumcision by itself, it's probably, uh, you know, that's a, a hard thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not something somebody decides lightly. No. <laughs> Although, from what I've heard, it's still, it's done under anesthetization. Mm. For some, will go completely. I'm sure it wears off at some point, you know. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> that anesthesia doesn't last forever. No, but once you're put back together, the, the pain is far less than when you're actually doing the surgery. I, I have yeah. to imagine, I mean, 
I've had no, for sure. I've for had sure. two hernia surgeries, and I can tell you that with me with the hernia surgery, with the first one, very little pain. I mm. loved how they did it. They did a great job. The second one was supposed to be a fancier, more this and that, and they refused to do it the way that I wanted to. They originally agreed to it, and then they changed the staff last minute. And they did it a different way, and I could tell you, the anesthesia alone was far worse. It wasn't the general, it was the local. Yeah. It was far worse. Oh, wow. The pain of it going in mm. and doing that and losing the control of my lower half of my body till mm. the point that I had it back was far worse than any pain that I had afterwards. Yeah. Far worse. So I'm not saying that <laughs> having one's foreskin removed is the same type of thing. Yeah. But it is the same region of the body, first off. Yeah, you can relate a little bit. And it's... You, you are being stitched back up. It's not like... Yeah. I mean, the actual surgery itself is... And the initial impetus. I've also had other... I've had other things along the way that I've had to deal with with pain. It's like I could tell you, the, the recovery pain is far less than the initial shock. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The shock is also something to deal with. Listen, man, this, is, this has been a, this is a great way of ending this conversation. Um, but thank you so much. I appreciate so all the listeners out there. Go, get, go schedule your circumcision yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did hear a story one time, and then I'll let you completely all right. it up. There was a Russian guy one time who was, I forget if he was actually Jewish and just never had a circumcision or he was converting, but he's like, and they're like, all right, so we're going to schedule for you the surgery and this and that. He's like, I'm a Russian. No anesthesia. Oh my Doing God. it right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is he still sane? Oh, yeah. uh, he probably wasn't sane to start with. <laughs> I think he had a finger vodka and did it. I don't even remember who the individual was, but I knew a rabbi who was involved with the prof. Oh, wow. So he went through with that? <laughs> yeah. Jeepers. That must have been a... That must have been a... a yo. Can't imagine, man. Anyways, Joel... Um, Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Maybe we'll have some more conversations in the future. Who knows? Um, mm. um, I would maybe like to talk to you more about the Samaritans. It's really interesting to me. The yeah, future. Fascinating. But uh, yeah, man, thanks. And be blessed. And, and may God protect you every moment okay. of the day. And may you experience that protection um, and have uh, your focus on Him. I think the important thing Not from your perspective is remembering that when you walk with God, nothing bad happens to you. Mm. Because even if it's apparently bad, it's, there's a certain good that's supposed to come out of it. I mean...